This is a Fubar Radio podcast. If you need any more information, head to fubarradio.com. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. I mean, you really, fu- you really <laughs> fucked me up. You really fucked me up. Like, uh, they were like, uh, we're really calm today. Really Sorry. calm. Sorry. Uh, got here in good time. Just live around the corner. And, uh, <laughs> I live a little way away. I was, I, I was a little bit late, I've got to admit. But um, I was so tired. And uh, I'm so tired. Uh, I went to the gym this morning and I got back and... Uh, um, uh, 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 <laughs> I was badly hungover, and uh, uh, and um, yes, I, and I went back home and I went to sleep for ten minutes, and you know how it is. It wasn't ten minutes. Ten minutes becomes seventeen with a snooze, uh, snooze button, snooze alarm. They have them on phones now. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so uh, just before just before uh, we started the show, and yes, it has started. It started. This is it. <laughs> Uh, this is the show. Don't try and improve what's already perfect. Um, <laughs> just before we start the show, Nat said to me, he said, uh, I remember, Nick, don't swear. <laughs> and it threw me. I was just like, what do you mean it? Have I been swearing too much? Uh, but it's a foobar. Foobar. Fucked up beyond all, all recognition. recognition. What, uh, the more you think from? about that, the more unpleasant it seems, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely horrific. Absolutely horrific. And uh, also the logo is a sound bar. Yes. Which is designed to look like like someone's sticking their... I think oh, I hadn't, someone, I hadn't noticed that before. I think it's someone sticking up their middle finger. Like, they don't give an F. I always <laughs> think... I know it isn't that, but, like, the, the Starbucks logo... Yeah. Got a cup somewhere. Starbucks logo is a woman fingering herself. Well, it, well, to me, it feels like it's a it's a mermaid giving giving two, two Vs up, both... Both oh. both barrels. Oh, uh, no, sorry. Uh, apologies to anyone at Starbucks. Uh, it's not... A woman fingering herself. Sorry, I, I misunderstood. Uh, but the capilla. <laughs> Are you worried about Starbucks I'm coming after about you? Starbucks coming after me. Bloody hell! Um, first of all, male. Uh, admittedly, they were delivering something to me, so it's slightly different. But uh, and, and now Starbucks. That's the last thing I need. Yeah. Um, but um, if the old capper logo. Um, oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you cover up the top, it's two women sitting back to back. Yes. Uh, and if you cover up the top, it looks like a woman uh, with her legs spread open. Oh. But it's a it's a torsoless, headless sure, woman. Sure, uh, makes it worse, not, doesn't it? Not for everyone, but <laughs> but mm. uh, it's 2018. Um, so I'm uh, uh, um, uh, this is Nick. oh yeah. My name's Nick Helm. And My name's Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to Nick and Nat's fan, fan club. club. And the first rule of fan club is tell your friends about fan club. Tell your friends club. about fan club. And the second rule <laughs> of fan club is. Please, um, please tell your friends. Oh, God, tell your friends. Um, I tell you what that was. That was good. Do you know, like um, TV shows now, like American shows usually, and they have a big build-up, don't they? they have a pre-credit sequence. They have a cold open. Yeah, they have a cold open. Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that that was what we just did. We did a we did a fucking cold open. Cold open. The trouble with this show is that it tends to be another hour and 50 minutes of coldness. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's quite cold at the minute. We've got the uh, aircon on. What are you in here for? What are you, uh, shush. She's saying shush, don't, don't do anything, but you are incredibly distracting. Got Hannah in. What are you, am I too loud or too quiet? Oh, I'm, I'm too quiet. Too, too loud. loud. Too loud. Oh, that's Did it seem um, like I was overpowered, powering? Um, I think that this is bad radio. Nat is too loud. This is bad radio. Uh, let's <laughs> let's make a pact right Never now. Never to do any more bad radio. Yeah. 
But let's make a pet right now. Uh, never to let our audience behind the magician's curtain. That's right. They no. don't know. They don't need to know the mechanics of what's know. going on in here. They don't need to know that, you know, um, I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> 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 um, it's fine. Um, uh, what is it? So uh, the reason I'm tired is I went to uh, see uh, Paul F. Taylor and Becky Shorrix. Well, Becky What's her name? They're married Becky now. Becky Shaw. Oh, yes, yeah. But I think uh, professionally. Professionally. Well, of short and curly years, but they yes. professionally. Went to see them last night at the Museum of Comedy. And I am exhausted because I laughed so much. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. What time of show finished now? Uh, it's uh, finished at eight. Finished at eight, so not so, that late. No, really? not that late. No. But it was Paul's birthday. Right, okay. They, was, they were celebrating. It was his birthday in August, wasn't it? Yeah, it was August the 3rd, in fact, for anyone that Fact's wants to right. make a note of that. Um, but uh, they've moved house and uh, they didn't organise a party before Edinburgh or after Edinburgh or during Edinburgh. And they've moved house, so Becky decided to make the last. They did like a couple of dates in London and she decided to make the last date his birthday. And. Um, it was uh, me and me and uh, the kid. Uh, it was one of our meeting days. And you should explain who the kid is. I think I, don't I like it. <laughs> I like it. And uh, normally we go to the cinema. And yesterday I was just like, oh, let's go to let's go to this. And so he came out, um, and um, he had a nice time. Uh, but then uh, he was he missed his um, he missed his train. So I had to. So, so I didn't have to, but I did. I waited. I waited with him uh, for his, the next train to come, which was late. And, um, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I've, kind of like, I've kind of forgot I'm on radio now. I kind of like petered out. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, so I had a late night. Uh, but anyway, that's not really what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is the fact that um, a Short and Curly Show is uh, was. Uh, I think it's the last time they're ever going to perform it. And okay. It was fucking incredible. It was oh, I loved it. I loved absolutely it. Absolutely incredible. It was so. Uh, it was. It was. Just, it was funny. It was clever, and it was just really sort of enjoyable. It, it, was, it was kind of like, uh, you know, um, we we were joking about it. Uh, but, uh, it was just so shambolic, but but in in the, that way that that Paul is, you know, and I loved it. I, yeah, I was in a double up with Paul a long time ago. Uh, so it was difficult watching him and Becky perform. <laughs> um, she's a very funny, very funny uh, performer. She's absolutely incredible. And while I was watching her, uh, watching her yesterday, I just thought she is absolutely incredible. But uh, she did split up the band. She um, did, yeah. So we were right. calling her Yoko the Clown yesterday. <laughs> um, but um, she's uh, yeah, it was it was just good. She's in, she's incredible. Yeah. But, and then he does the he, my I don't know if it was my favourite bit, but it was a really great bit. It was when he dresses up as the Zoltar machine from Big, yeah. And just as he was trying to get on the stage, you know, his turban kept falling off, and he, and he <laughs> you know, there's there's kind of like uh, they're doing they're doing a routine, and then something goes wrong, and I don't obviously know the mechanics of oh it, it's it's the act, but just the. The veneer of when of frustration, you know, the, the 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 level of frustration that was underneath the veneer of professionalism that they had, was so sort of subtle, you know. It wasn't because it's easy to sort of like really yeah. big it up and do like panto with it, and it was just really. I just loved everything about it. I thought it was absolutely amazing because it's shambolic show, but not in the way it's very structured as well. Oh, yeah, isn't it's it? not it feels shit. Like the jokes are great, and and I, but it's it, not like it's sort of. I mean, with. 
when I when I do stuff it's, that's shambolic, a lot of it is hmm. genuinely shambolic, uh, but that's sort of deliberate. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Well, You've, people think this like they they describe this show as shambolic, but it's actually it's all written, isn't it? It's all. Uh, well, we, one of the reasons I'm so tired is I was up all night bloody remembering right, right these the, lines. Right, yeah. That was an aside, uh, but um, it's, <laughs> 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 it's hard. No, <laughs> Sorry, no, but it's not. No, but, but, the, but, the, it's but, but the thing is, you know, shambolic comedy or shambolic performance. I mean, this show is shambolic. Yeah. But um, that's what makes it the show. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. If it was all neat, then what's the point? And exactly. also, I wouldn't want to do that. And also, my you know my stand-up act that's shambolic. When I was in the double act with Paul F. Taylor, that was the fucking most shambolic thing ever. <laughs> um, uh, fucking hell! I mean, we did that for a month, a month in two thousand and eight. <laughs> Cancelled half of them. Watched the winter. Watched the Olympics, and then we'd perform in front of large groups of uh, Spanish tourists that didn't speak any English, and they were just like, "What the fuck is this?" Only in Spanish, and uh, yeah, it was yeah an absolute pointless exercise. But it feels almost short and curly stuff. I think almost feels like it's very like it's like a sort of kids show for adults or something. Yeah. It's got that real I was like. Uh, I was, there wasn't loads of swearing, but I was surprised that there was swearing. Yeah, exactly. It and feels almost like like it's, Paul said fuck a couple of times. Yeah, and you go. No, oh, that's uh, what about the children? <laughs> and then you go. Oh, there are no children. Uh, no, but it's, but, I, but it would be an amazing uh, kids show. Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, I just I could, but I, and I love them both uh, so much as people. Um, I was just so uh, happy to see see them yesterday. It was it was such a good show. My thing about it was the show I did in Edinburgh, like probably re- relies on about having two or three little props that I can go. Oh, I've got this and I've got that. And uh, every day before Edinburgh, I'd have this thing where I'd go, have I got that? I've got that one and that one. Okay, I'm fine. But then their show, I just imagined there must be so much prep that you'd... you'd like, the idea that you wouldn't forget one thing or, like, every everything's a prop or there's so much to remember that I just was, yeah. find that stressful, just how much you've got to yeah, remember. It made, it made me feel sick just watching them at the end of the night because it was, it, was um, it was their last show, so they were just collecting all their stuff and then we went to the pub. Um, and they were in the pub and they basically had the corner of the pub blocked out <laughs> with all of their props. <laughs> and at the end of the night, uh, they were trying to get an Uber and two Ubers turned up and refused to take them with all of their stuff. And then the third one, they, they ended up having to destroy the, the Zoltar machine because <laughs> oh. it was a cardboard box. Yeah, they were just yeah. like, okay, well, we can redo that. Um, but you just go, it was, uh, when, we were, when we were a double act, it was always such a ball ache and it was always so stressful. We used to do, we used to do a, um, we used to do a sketch where uh, we would have puns um, on our, uh, we'd get a notepad each and a piece of string that went through the notepad and we wore it around our necks like a like a n- necklace and then so we'd have a notepad on our chest and uh we'd go through the notepad and we would write um uh bad puns for people's names so it'd be like i'm colin colin Durr. put the lettuce in my hands and i'll shake it dry you know <laughs> and it'd be like hello uh, my name's fat nav where's the pizza express it's 20 minutes down the road you know and it'd be like like that right and um uh but when we did them we would we would rip we would 
we would have like a, a whole stack of names. He'd have half, and I'd have half, and we'd rip them off and throw them on the floor. We'd have to do that every fucking time. We'd have to buy a notepad every time. <laughs> we'd have to buy a string every time because no one ever brought the string. Uh, you'd have to remember all of the names, and we'd write them down. On the, we were fucking unorganised. Sort of, but it's funnier, isn't it? If you'd use the same thing, I know you need to collect all those and make sure the pads in. I, I think it's it, just funnier. I think, well, the, the, the Al Coco Pops joke, which was yes. when I got, I, I, I'd go to, the, I mean, <laughs> we mentioned it when he did it before, but um, when, when he was on the show, but I'd, I'd buy a packet of, like a box of Coco Pops and a pint of beer at a cost of like eight quid, seven, and I didn't have any money. You know, this is when I lost so much weight that my trousers kept falling down, right? <laughs> Didn't have any money, right? And so, you, you had that string, though. Shame. Yeah, I had that string, really had the string to cover my, hold my trousers up. But the Alco Pops joke was like, it cost eight quid and it lasts two seconds. And it's me <laughs> pouring a pint of beer into a packet of Cocoa Pops. And I go, Al Cocoa Pops, I've said this before, mm, makes the beer taste chocolatey. And... Um, if that didn't get a laugh, then what? <laughs> but like, we didn't do it that often because we didn't. Because we didn't do. It was maybe towards the end of our partnership, but um, uh, but so we didn't do it that that many times. But I do remember me kind of like uh, taking apart a cocoa pops box and uh, uh, covering it with sticky back plastic and then reassembling it. Um, so that so it would, so yeah, it yeah. would contain, uh, so it could contain, contain beer, but that never worked. And um, yeah, I, but I think what made the joke funny was that you go, what a waste. Yeah. Just what an absolute, what a dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> what an absolute waste. And you go, and I think that what makes me laugh a lot is when you see something the that is, that, there's been so much effort that's been put <laughs> into something that's a throwaway, and you, it's like the, the effort is painful. Yeah, you just got that. that like we did a joke. <laughs> we were remembering this yesterday. Um, we, if if anyone is interested, if you type in Helman Taylor on YouTube, we we came. We did the Laughing Horse finals. Um, I think it was probably ten years ago, two thousand and eight. Yeah, and it's one of my favourite clips of anything that I've done on YouTube because it was just me and Paul, just uh, literally just absolutely fucking fucking a, a, a competition up right <laughs> and uh, but the thing is we got like the best I can't remember any uh, I can't remember much about the night but uh, we got one of the best responses of the whole evening and there was a really sweet sort of sad moment where me and Paul were sat on the stairs while they were announcing the winners and they announced third place and it wasn't us and we were like oh well we did really well and then they announced second place and it still wasn't us and we are like we haven't. We've never. Won. We haven't won, have we? And we were almost <laughs> getting up, Joe. <laughs> and then they announced first place. It wasn't us. And it's just like we didn't even get placed. That's fucked up. Um, what's, what's so we had this really great. We had this one of my favourite jokes that we did was I got um, an old sort of uh, uh, Mac, you know, like a Macin, like a like Macintosh, a, a Macintosh, but a coat, right? And I drew an eye on the back of it. Mm-hmm. And I attached uh, four plastic apples on the front of it, yeah. and we put it on a coat hanger that had. There was two coat hangers that had four oranges attached to it, and I'd hold the coat up and I'd go, "I Mac," and I'd switch it around and and uh, you know, I'd turn it around. So I'd go, "I Mac, Apple Mac," and then I'd take the coat off, Orange Mobile, and um, and I just really loved it. And it always got like, but it was like um, it was like an onslaught, you know. Yeah. But. Um, uh, it was just sort of like there were so many shit jokes. We used to call it our joke graveyard. 
because we like I'd do a joke on my, when, in my solo act and it wouldn't work, and then uh, I'd put it into Helm and Taylor, and, then it, <laughs> and, and, and it worked. And he did the same, and it was just kind of like. But, um, but I'd that say joke, it was a beloved double act, though, wasn't it? People loved it. Well, we we literally would turn up to back in back when we were sort of like when we were all young. Mm. When we, when laughing horse competitions were sort of like a huge deal and it was very stressful, I would do solo stuff and maybe I'd get through a round. Me and Paul didn't care about the double act in, in a way that was like, let's take this really seriously. Yeah, yeah. We just did it for fun. And we got all the way to the final. Whereas yes. us as solo acts that we really cared about, I mean, we didn't get anywhere. Um, but um, but the thing about the orange mobile joke was that I used to buy four, go around the corner, I used to buy four oranges. <laughs> every day, every time we did it, I would have a knitting needle with me. I would stick the needle through the orange and thread some string through it. And my hands would be covered in juice. And I'd be in, <laughs> I'd be in the corner of the pub that we were just about to perform in. And the, my hands would be covered in juice. And I'd be tying, <laughs> tying these bits of string around these uh, oranges. And then I'd be making the... Uh, coat hangers and then taping the coat hangers together and it was just like and then it was right at the end it just occurred to us that oh we just buy fake oranges <laughs> and then it's always good you know it doesn't just rot slowly in your hallway at home um, but yeah so I really I really and I think what I like about that <clears throat> is that you can see that Paul is Paul it's still Paul but there's sort of like something that's a bit more professional because Becky's there. Becky's a trained actress. Mm. And so she's she sort of like... Yeah, it's still we that would kind never, of thing, isn't it? I don't think we were ever going to get anywhere. You know? Yeah. But um, but now it's kind of like it's got like a more rigid structure. And you did, what, about 2010 maybe? You did like a Christmas show at the Hen and Chickens. Yeah, 2010 we did a Christmas show, yeah. And that was, I would say... 100% comedians watching it. It was oh, all was like, it? well, I remember think? it being like, a, well, <clears throat> maybe like, but it always felt like it just it was one of those things where everyone went to. It sure. almost felt like office Christmas party. Right, yeah. But so I think it was think beloved, it, wasn't it? I People loved what, it. Did we do it? I think we did it once. I think it was just the one thing. And we did some really, I think we did some fun stuff in there where we got everyone to wear. Uh, masks of people from Live Aid but we made <laughs> and we got everyone to sing at the end but they weren't masks they were paper plates and we'd just drawn like Phil Collins on it and stuff and um, yeah yeah I really loved it but I mean I, ju I just yeah anyway I just saw it last night and um, uh, and I just think yeah they're amazing and I, I said it before I said it when they came on the show before mm -hmm. Edinburgh that I thought they were going to have a good year they did have a good year um <clears throat> But um, I think any listeners out there that aren't aware of them, you should uh, definitely start... Following them on their social medias. Start following them and seeing them at gigs and stuff, because they're, they're great. Um, so, anyway, what have you been up to? What haven't I been up to? What, well, haven't you been up to? Lots of, I mean... I'm, uh, we went to see the <laughs> film. <laughs> Just teasing. Just having a tease. Oh, I saw the film Mandy yeah, with I, you. I saw that. We saw it at the Union Chapel. The Union Chapel. With Ed Gamble and Brett Goldstein. We did. On Tuesday evening. And um, it's the new Nicolas Cage film. From what's the name of the director? Uh, Panos Cosmatos. Cosmatos. The son of the director of Rambo First Blood Part 2, Cobra and Tombstone. Tombstone. Uh, which were famously... <laughs> you allowed to say, yeah, fucked up beyond all recognition. Uh, they were ghost directed by him. Yes, um, that's, yeah. So what happened was that um, what's his name, George P. 
Cosmatos. Cosmatos. Well, yeah. The story I heard was that um, uh, Sylvester Stallone uh, wanted to direct Rambo mm-hmm. 2. Um, and the studios were a bit reluctant or... So, uh, so he, he hired George P. Cosmatos. Cosmopos? Well, I guess it would Cosmopos. be a safe pair of hands and has done other things. Yeah, who's kind of like a, like a very kind of like... Um, competent. Competent action uh, director. workman-like director who does kind of like, you know, standard uh, non-flourishy action movies. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Sylvester Stone basically uh, got him along and then he directed and the other guy got to have his name on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I think he did the same thing with Cobra. And then Stallone did Tango and Cash with... Um, Kurt, Kurt Russell, Russell. Uh, which wasn't directed by George B. Cosmatos. No, I don't know who what, he was. Say his name. Cosmatos. Or Cos- Cosmatos? Or Cos- Cos- Cosmatos. I might be saying it wrong. Cosmatos. Cosmatos. Um, anyway, so... Uh, be so Cosmatos. So later, <coughs> Kurt Russell was... Um, uh, passion, his passion project was Tombstone. Yeah. And Kevin Costner was also making a Wyatt Earp movie at the same time. And Kevin Costner was coming off like the success of Dances with Wolves and yeah. uh, Robin Hood. And also, that was very much seen, wasn't it? When Tombstone was coming out, there was this idea that basically this Wyatt Earp movie is going to wipe the floor with it and Tombstone's going to be. But what happened was Wyatt Earp came out uh, much the, later, wasn't no, it? I think it came out at the beginning. Oh no, it came out later, didn't it? Yeah. So Tombstone came out in like March, February, yeah, yeah. March, and everyone watched it, and uh, and it was like an hour and a half, and it was kind of like this is the Wyatt Earp movie, and then uh, Wyatt Earp was like a three-hour movie, yeah, that was very slow and not fun, and very and basically everyone by the time by the time that came out, Tombstone was in Blockbuster, yeah, and everyone was like, um, I think we'll watch this instead, yeah. or we've already seen this film. It was called Tombstone. I love Tombstone. I, I think it's great. I think it's I think it's good. Um, it's not like a favourite, and I do like Cowboys, but it's oh, I, I really love it. It's not really. Right. Love I love it. Kurt Russell. I just think that yeah, he's such a anyway. So he's such a difficult character. I got it? two guns, one for each of you. We're talking oh. about Tombstone. That is Tombstone. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, uh, George P. Cosmatos. I'll be your Huckleberry. Um, I mean, stop changing subject. Tombstone. Oh. Tombstone. Oh. Um, so, uh, what, so I find Kurt Russell's performance in that really um, uh, quite unlikable, and, uh, and he's very quiet in that film. Yeah, yeah. Now, the reason for that, one of the reasons for that, is basically uh, they had... Uh, the production for it was really difficult. And uh, the, the post-production, the pre-production for it was really difficult. He had loads of arguments. They wanted to bring in a, a director to do this. They wanted to do. Uh, they wanted to recast it. Um, they said basically, um, Kurt Russell, you can't be in it. Uh, you can't do this and that. And uh, and he he couldn't have the cast that he wanted. And so basically, Kurt Russell said, right, well, um, he phoned up Sylvester Stallone and he said, who's the name of the guy? <laughs> <laughs> that directed uh, that you got to direct Rambo First Blood Part Two, and he told him, and he went right, and so he hired him to do Tombstone. So basically, what had happened was um, uh, Kurt Russell uh, said, "Right, I'm going to direct this film." So he, he got the cast around, and he said, "I'm going to direct this film, um, but uh, just so that I gain your trust, I'm going to cut eighty percent of all my lines." Oh, okay. So. Um, so there was like people like Sam Elliott and uh, Val Kilmer, 
And they were all kind of like, okay, so basically Kurt Russell just cut all of his stuff and he did everything. It was almost like, not a silent performance, but it was um, an economic, mm. it was economically scripted. Well, like I was saying, my, my two impressions there from the film Tombstone were both uh, Val Kilmer bits. So they sort of, he gives a real big, oh, it's, it's a, a huge kind of showy a, role for Kilmer. It's a showy role for Kilmer and then he gets to do kind of like the quiet brooding yeah, yeah. cowboy thing. Um, and so what he'd do is they'd film all day and then he'd stay up all night planning the shots that they were going to do the next day and then giving them over to the director. And then uh, and so it was kind of like it, it, was, it was being ghost-directed, but Kurt Russell basically said, said that he directed... Um, Tombstone, um, but uh, and this story came out a couple of years ago because Kurt Russell was doing press for I don't know what he was doing, but he was it, he was having a resurgence, uh, which is weird because I don't think he should have ever gone away. But nah. he did have like a bit of a dry spot yeah, in the two thousands. Sure, yeah, yeah. But um, he but George P. Cosmatos died um, a few years ago. Yeah, and J- Kurt Russell said that um, he didn't want to tell people that he directed Tombstone within his lifetime. So he was, so so, <laughs> but once he died, he he, he then decided that. to absolutely trash his legacy. <laughs> and you go, oh right, okay. Um, I can't. It's a bit of a bit of a weird way of going about it. Anyway, his son directed the movie Mandy. Yes, and previously he did a film called Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is like a sort of very quiet, brooding, quite slow sci-fi movie. Yeah, and there's elements of that. I've, I haven't seen that. Okay, but it's been on my Amazon uh, list for a long time. Phil wants to get you. If anyone wants to, no, no. it's not a public list. No. Um, what did you think of Mandy? <laughs> I uh, hang on. Three. Uh, we do one word review in three, okay after three. Okay. Um, oh, hang on. Oh, I don't know what my word is. One, two, oh, three, two, one. one. Yeah, Unusual. I liked it. So, like it's it's. Um, I I didn't love it. I like lots of things about it. I think it was trying to have its cake and eat it a bit. It's a very much like there's a lot of these at the minute where they're kind of like throwback, almost 80s B-movie, uh, video era B-movie. Yeah. People trying to recreate that in a film. And it feels like another one of them. But it also has this thing, I think, like Beyond the Black Rainbow, where it also it's like a genre film that also wants to be. It's, it's quite arty and it's wants to art be. It's an house B-movie. Yeah. And I'm not sure as a thing. I like that idea so much. And the idea that it's also two hours, so it gets to be quite pondering, whereas it also wants to be like an 80-minute, like, straight-through, mad... Gore-fest. Yeah. Um, But also... uh, No, I forgot what I was going to (laughs) say. I interrupted you, and I've paid the penalty. But there's lots of good things about it. I really like the soundtrack. Oh, uh, that, that was it. It's um, it's very slow and ponderous, mm-hmm. and then halfway through, they start throwing out these one-liners, and you go, "Yes," which are from. It was almost like someone else had written it and yes. someone else directed it, because um, it was kind of like the the tone of the one-liners was kind of like, "Oh, he's telling jokes now." Yeah, but it was yeah. that character hadn't really been established as someone that would have those kind of the, yeah. I and I think you meant to assume that he's something like an alcoholic who's sober. For most of the film, and maybe this this relationship he's in has, has sort of sorted him out, and yeah. then when it all goes wrong, he becomes sort of reverts back to being this sort of wild character. Sure, 
that that's that you're sort of inferring that yourself, aren't you? I really um, enjoyed a lot of it. Me too. Like when I when I was enjoying it, I thought it was brilliant, mm-hmm. and when I wasn't, I found it boring. Mm. And I found and I, what I should say beforehand was that um, I this is one of the films, and maybe this is the most excited about a film I've been in the last two yeah. years. Yeah. Um, I can't even remember the last time I was this excited about seeing yes. a film and I wasn't like overly going for it and I don't think I built it up too much in my head I was just kind of like throughout the day I was kind of like um, oh god I've got so much work to do yeah. and then in the, and then every so often I'd go oh I'm going to go see Mandy tonight yeah. and I was sort of like really and I used to hate Nicolas Cage as well um, until I went on uh, Space Mountain 11 times in a row got whiplash <laughs> had to go on Tramadol and uh, ended up watching a load of Nicolas Cage films uh, which was absolutely fantastic um, so since then that was kind of like oh right, I do like Nicolas Cage um, and I really loved the fact that um, he's kind of like and this is the first time I've ever heard uh, this is the first time I've kind of like been aware that people when they were watching it going oh man he went full cage Yes, Do you know what I mean? It was yes, just kind yes. of like it's kind of like he's he's made so many shit straight to video or straight to TV uh, movies over the last what ten years, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of like you kind of not that you've given up on him, but it's it's great to see him have the opportunity to kind of like. Um, just really do something mental yeah. that only really Nicolas Cage could do. Um, Whereas I, I, I really, I've always really liked Nicolas Cage, and I think those movies that he's done in the last ten years are almost ones I haven't really seen because I've worried that they're too like, like almost too silly. What I would say is that I loved Raising Arizona. I loved yes. early Nicolas Cage. Yeah, me too. And then I loved The Rock. Yeah. And then he annoyed me in Face Off uh, at the beginning. But the, but the, the Face Off is not a film that has aged well. No, not like Con Air. And I love him in Con Air. Well, we I talked about Con Air last week, yeah. but I mean, I love him in Con Air. But uh, Face Off was the film that when Face Off came out, that was the film I was so excited about it. And then when I watched it, I remember being a bit like, oh, I, I wanted to like Face Off much more. I, than I, I told myself that I loved it, and it got five stars in Empire mm. and all of that. And I was kind of like, uh, but the, I've just the bit when the family run their hands over each other's faces, and that's their thing. It's kind of like, is that what you've developed between you, <laughs> John Travolta and Nicolas Cage? You go, we need to have a thing that we we both do when we swap faces. You go, oh yeah, you just go up to your family members and you get their hands and you rub it all over the other person's face. It's just <laughs> you go, that's fucking, that's fucking ridiculous. When she goes over to the little kid at the end, spoiler alert. Spoiler. Nice. And uh, when uh, when she goes over to the little kid at the end and she fucking rubs his face and puts his puts her hand. I suppose it's because it's about faces. Sure. But it's more like feces. That's uh, that's my review. Um, <laughs> but um, so. Uh, so, t- so I went away from Nicholas Cage. Mm-hmm. A National Treasure can fuck right off. National Treasure Two can fuck, oh, yeah, even, fuck even further off. <laughs> and uh, the, but you know, but I like stuff like Vampire's Kiss. I mean, I thought that that was incredible. I think that's like a really great precursor. And people hate that film. But I, I didn't know people hated it. I people thought people, people really like it. People think that it's a bad Nicholas Cage film. They think it's no, a bad no, performance. No, no, you go, no, no. that is an amazing performance. That's one of the good. That's one of the good movies. That is that is how that is what Nicholas Cage. You know, if Nicholas Cage came along and he did that performance now, you'd go, that's an absolutely. And I think it's a really great precursor to American. Psycho, uh, the film and yes. the book, because it's kind of about a guy that thinks he's a vampire and he goes around being a vampire, even though he's not a vampire. Yeah. And um, and but he's like a city guy, uh, an eighties kind of. But it was actually filmed when 
American Psycho is set. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, the, in that era. It's not like American Psycho is set in the 80s. It's like it was the 80s when yes. they made that film. I fucking, yeah. So I, I really like it. I, Mandy, I just thought, and it's also a tick list of everything that I love. It was like Yeah, a me heavy, too. I think that's it. A heavy metal revenge movie starring Nicolas Cage that's got like amazing, but it was never not beautiful to look at. Yes. Um, I, th- but, uh, you know, uh, this was Ed's opinion, but, um, but uh, it, I, I just thought it, would, it got gory, but it never really went gory enough for me. No, it didn't. It was never that extreme. Uh, there's lots of odd things that I really like about it. Uh, it has things like a mad villain played by uh, Linus Roach, who is uh, son of Ken Barlow from Coronation Street. Is he the on-screen son? No. No, he's in real life. In real life? Yeah, he's in real Ken life. Barlow's yeah. son. The actor... William Roach. But he also played, uh, I spent the whole time going through it, going, uh, I spent the whole time watching it, trying to work out where I'd seen him before, and he's Batman's dad from Batman yes. Begins, and uh, he gets his cock out, doesn't he? So, he does. And not only, I wanted to talk to you not about... Not in Batman Begins. That, um, not in Batman Begins. <laughs> in, uh, in, um, in Mandy. In Mandy. Um, uh, so that was food for thought. Spoilers. And, um, sorry, spoilers. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you like watching uh, films with male genitalia in it, Go and see Mandy, um, <laughs> uh, but I. But I think the way that I best summed it up for myself was that I enjoyed it a lot more when I wasn't watching it. Yes. So the, yeah, like is it in, next, as like an experience you've watched it and gone, ne- oh, that's fun. Yeah. The yeah. next day, it it was like uh, I was like, oh, I thought about it all day, and I was just yeah. thinking, oh, I like, oh, I like, I like that. But but I didn't. When I was watching it, I I was bored. Until I wasn't bored, and then I loved it. And Bill Duke was in it. Yes. And I always love seeing Bill Duke. Bill Duke is um, uh, from Predator and uh, Commando, and uh, he famously, or not famously, uh, directed Sister. <laughs> he's he's like this. He's like this real tough guy. Um, he's he's the bald black guy in Predator who's, who's always shaving. shaving. And he's like this tough macho guy. And he's also in Commando. And he like he's, he goes toe to toe with Arnie. And you genuinely think he could probably win. Yeah, yeah. Like he's uh, but he's not huge. But he's like really fucking yes. tough. And he's mean. Looking. He's got he's got an aura of uh, meanness he's and a, a tough, absolute tough bastard. And you just go fucking hell. And uh, he directed Sister Act Two: Back in the Habit. Uh, and that's my favourite. One of my favourite predator <laughs> facts is that he got uh, two governors, and uh, maybe they'll get him to direct the next predator film, but with Whoopi Goldberg. And uh, I don't think they should make any predator films. <laughs> I don't think. I think they should stop. I think they should have stopped. They at, stop I think they should have stopped at one. It, that first film is such a magnificent, perfect. That's uh, for me. That's a perfect film. Mm. Uh, that is that is on my list of that is a flawless film. I think it's everything about it: the tone, the cast, the e- economic uh, uh, storytelling and character development. It's just all great. Everything's there in the film, and uh, n- not not just that none of the sequels because Predator Two is okay, but not that none of the sequels are as good. None of the sequels are in the same conversation. It's just like it's just that film. Anyway, Mandy, uh, I liked it. Um, Definitely, I think people should see it, right? Because it feels like I think what the the thing I came from it was I really like that idea of those sort of eighties B movie revisited films. But actually, I think watching them, I think I just like the originals, and I don't want to. I don't know if I want to see people trying to remake those films. But there's enough of them that I like them. I like watching old ones. 
Yeah, sure. And I don't know if I don't know if we need to see ones that. No, are like, I think it, I think it was great. But if it was like a cocaine fueled uh, non-stop roller coaster, which is what it, so it advertises kind of, it itself as, which yeah. is what it's advertising, and I think it's what it thinks it is, mm. then you go, yeah, sure. Yeah, I I, th- I don't think there's anything wrong with making stuff no. like that, but make it. Don't yeah. just kind of like leave a lot of it for us to kind of um, retrospectively go. Mm. Oh, I, like I, I think I like both versions of the film. I like the slow, ponderous one. If it was like that all the way through, you'd be like, "That yeah, was good." Absolutely. What's was, what was the film that I sort of I compared we to? We were talking about that um, a, a brawl on Cell Block Ninety Nine, weren't we? And yeah. that, that's a similar thing, which is like an eighties. Yeah, I, 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 I think I might, I might have preferred that more when the gore kicks in in that. Mm. And I'm not like a gore hound, but I mean that's what those films are. Yeah. When the gore kicks in in that, it's kind of um, uh, worth the wait. Yeah. But with this, it was just kind of like, oh, you sort but of both, cut someone's head yeah, off. Yeah, they're both examples of that, that kind of films that splice together. One that's more of a kind of uh, a sort of more thoughtful film. Sure. And another one which is sort of all out gore action. What, what, and that it's marrying them together that feels like I almost would have preferred. I feel like when you buy into the story of something, it almost feels slightly cheated to then have a a thing where it's like don't actually care about any of these characters sure it's that I think it's like it sort of builds up this idea of like you're sort of invested in it and then the second half is kind of no it's all mad and silly yeah whereas actually I think it shows you how good something like a film like From Dust Till Dawn is which actually works both ways yeah sure where I think that's a good film a good example of something that when that has the switch it's still the first half is still B-movie enough that you kind of it's fine and you're not terribly invested, whereas this almost feels like you, you, you're, you're basically you're watching uh, a recreation of some sort of real life scenario, which then turns into something which sure. is so, like you know, broad and sure. mad and yeah. And I feel like it almost. I, feel, I think I always feel a bit cheated more than I feel like satisfied. By that. I didn't feel it that jarring, but I do know what you mean. Like, like the slow pace. I mean, I saw a ghost story recently. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Casey Affleck. Film. I haven't seen that. I think that that film is incredible. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought it was like for me, it was so slow, so beautiful. Like no pun intended, but it was haunting, right? And that's obviously Good the one. tone. That's the, obviously the tone that they were going for. Nice one. But I just loved it. Fuck off, right? I don't know if you know, but you're saying that into the actual microphone. Oh shit! For listeners at home. <laughs> For listeners at home, me and Nat famously don't get on. No. Right? When we're doing the radio we're show, scripted. he's it's scripted, completely he's taunting me every every single time. And this time he's gone one step too far by actually whispering it into the fucking microphone. It's very fucking unprofessional, Matt Calf. I've learned un- my life. I think this is unprofessional because you've gone off script. Oh, uh, right. No, Let's get back there. on that script. It's on page 32. Okay. Um, ghost Story is absolutely fucking uh, uh, incredible. It's such a slow... Uh, team Nat, fuck you, Nat. Oh. Well, she would be Team Nat because she's also a Nat. by gnats. Yes. And not the buzzing, biting kind. <laughs> Although there's plenty of backbite. Back-biting. Yes. <laughs> I don't know don't know what the phrase I'm going for there is. Uh, 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 um, <laughs> Sorry, a ghost the tone story. Of, the tone of Mandy, uh, the, I was trying to, when I was watching Mandy, it was mm-hmm. so slow. And I was trying to remember the last film that I watched that was that slow. Mm-hmm. And it was a ghost story. And I loved a ghost story. And so I think you're right. If it was all like that, it was fine. But then, and it was all the other thing. But yes, you know, it's that's great. what I think. But <laughs> watch it because it's well worth watching, and there's lots of good stuff in it's it. Brilliant. It's brilliant. And, and do you know what? Um, we're in the minority. Yeah, everyone has gone apeshit crazy yes. for it, and I just think that you know maybe maybe I was just tired. Can I play a song?
heart's a virgin It ain't never been tried And you know I never cried Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff there from Alice Cooper. Not what you expect. No, I was saying that. No, part of the education of the masses here. When I say masses, how many listeners? How many listeners now? Seven. Seven, seven <laughs> listeners. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> seven, seven people that... I love that song so much. I was just heard that. That's my, um, that's my drunk at three o'clock in the morning song. Well, I'll, 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 <laughs> on, or it'll be my... Um, uh, Hungover in the morning song. Sure. When I wake up. Oh, it'll be like my jogging song. Do you imagine people looking like <laughs> I listen to it a lot. Yeah. I love that song. Do I imagine Do you what? imagine you're sort of, that it's part of like, that the world can see you as if, it, as if you're in a musical? No. <laughs> no, I don't do that. Uh, uh, no, it's uh, obviously an absolute fucking state. Um, and I would not like to uh, think that anyone would see me. No. <laughs> I wanted to just ask you one thing uh, recently about comic books. Oh, yeah. Uh, seeing as we were talking about Batman's dad's dick. Um, no, it's his, uh, Batman's dick. Batman's, uh, we, we were just talking about Batman's dad's dick. Oh, yes, we, we were. <laughs> so I wanted to say, uh, yeah, so Batman in the comic books uh, got his dick out, didn't he? Did, he, he recently. did, he did. Yeah, that happened. That didn't last a long time, though, did it? They, they, they retracted <laughs> retract, oh. They retracted his penis right the way back they into did. his they body, put it in a, like a samurai. They basically <laughs> decided to do a mature reader's imprint based on their main like characters, yeah. which is a fine idea. You can do that, sure. Works well with Batman. Uh, but then they did one where part of the reason why they showed it was for mature readers was that Batman comes back from like a night of crime fighting. And then he takes sort of all of his clothes takes off. all of his clothes off. In silhouette, really. Yeah, but then you sort of, you could definitely, it was drawn to be like, because it's for mature readers, you can definitely see an outline of his cock. Yeah. And I think that they even do a bit of like moonlight shining on his. Yeah, 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 yeah. You get a bit of a. Nice cock. <laughs> Slightly plump, a bit like uh, Ben Affleck's when uh, out of ten. Uh, out of ten, um, well, <laughs> out of ten, it looked like it was a seven. The seven, that's, that's not bad. <laughs> but um, what is it? Ben Affleck's uh, in Gone Girl, isn't it? There's a shower scene in Gone Girl where Ben Affleck is just in the shower, and for some reason, you just see his cock. Oh, I haven't seen Gone Girl. Oh, mate. If you if you want to see Ben Affleck's cock, yeah, you can just see sort of like I don't think you can see the the end of his cock, uh, but you can see the beginning. But you can see the beginning. Nice plump cock there, Ben. <laughs> Out of ten, a seven. So this is what we you can see why to. it's almost like they based uh, comic book Batman's cock on uh, movie uh, movie Batman's cock. Um, and speaking of Batman. Speaking of cocks. <laughs> speaking of Batman. Um, well, I don't know how to do this. It's, uh, line, it's the one that's line hold, right? Um, so uh, we're now going to go over live to our first guest of the morning. Uh, Rob, it's the afternoon. Uh, it's uh, Robin Ince. Hello? Hello. Do you know what? That's lovely. I was told immediately to your the way. Say that again. Say that again. I was. I was. Oh, we oh, might have a... Right, we, we're going to have to phone you back. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, hang no. on. 
Well, no, I was just saying that I was told just before I came on, they said, just remember, it's it, it's an uncensored station. The very first couplet of words I heard was plump cock. Well <laughs> done, everyone. Well, that's it. That's, it what, that's what we're talking about. And yeah, that's what you're here to talk about as well, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, well, I, 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 as you know, Nathaniel, from, the, from the, uh, the comic shop times, where I accidentally bought my uh, 10-year-old son, uh, Mark Miller's The Ultimate, Oh, and yeah, uh, I left it for him, and uh, when I rang him up to see if he'd enjoyed it, he just went, Dad, it was not appropriate. And I feel <laughs> that in many ways, that tagline will fit with this show as well. <laughs> uh, what it's, do you think of Ben Affleck's cock? Out of ten. I've, I've never seen it. Oh, That's you've it. got to see Gone Girl. Where, Gone where Girl. am I going to find this? It's on Gone Girl, mate. Gone Girl. There's, a shower, Gone scene. Girl. There's a shower scene towards <laughs> the end of Gone Girl. It's probably within the last five minutes of... I mean, they were they were home straight. They didn't need to do it. <laughs> uh, and in the last five, five ten minutes of the film... They ruined ben it, right Affleck is, No, they don't ruin it. It makes it weirdly better. Was it like... Is it an M. Night Shyamalan one? It was, well, there was a twist at the end. Yeah, was. <laughs> of his well, it's, it's one of those bits, isn't it? That, uh, as a film, a great director, when a film starts to flag, you know, David Lean would often say, oh, do you know what, the last five minutes of Lawrence Arabia, I don't know if it's working. Peter, could you pop it out? <laughs> just just on the camel, just rest it gently on the, on the top of the camel. Just Tighten it up. Drape it. Drape it over a camel's hump. <laughs> Do you know what? I love having conversations like this when I'm stood in the middle of uh, Nottingham Railway Station. <laughs> oh, pick that name up off the ground. <laughs> Someone's in Nottingham. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you what, I was in North Allerton yesterday as well. Go on. I, I can keep the momentum going. Oh, there you go. We've got a picture of Ben Affleck's cock uh, right here. Just the, just, the, just the beginning of it, really. Or is that the end? Is that an actual bell end there? Is that a bell end that you're showing us? We'd have to. Fantastic. So, um, so, you've written, <laughs> so you've written a book about philosophy. Uh, <laughs> fill your boots. <laughs> That's what, what, one of my favourite... This is like the antithesis of the segue that I had on Channel 5 the other day where I was on a show with a bloke who's on Putin's assassination list, right? And he told this <laughs> tragic story about the fact of a friend of his who was murdered. And literally, as he finished saying that, uh, it just went through. Now, Robin, you've got a book out. <laughs> well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Don't make me look too mercenary. Anyway, lost his face. mate, you've got a book out. That's not about those kind of things, is it? No, but you have got a book out, and it's called yes, I have. I'm a Joke and So Are You. And I've just got it, and I'm only about 20 pages in, which isn't enough, really. Um, but. <laughs> And I haven't... Um, you haven't read it at all I yet. haven't read it at all. Although I have seen quite a, a blitz on Twitter that uh, people are retweeting stuff about it. And, um, uh, yeah, and, uh, it's, it was... There are some things that I don't like reading, and this is one of the things that I do like the look of. So um, I'm looking forward to reading well, it. Well, hopefully you like... I mean, because I, I, I think, you know, between the three of us, we're all kind of, you know, the, 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 the fascination with, with, with comedy... And, and humanity and both its kind of, you know, absurdity. 
Uh, and, and I've tried to put in as many, you know, I've interviewed loads and loads of different people in it, and I've made sure that also, you know, not to forget to also mention Ken Dodd and Les Dawson as well. Some of yes. the, uh, I haven't got the Grumbleweeds in, which is a pity, because I genuinely do love the Grumbleweeds. Oh, yeah. I have this, it's one of those things where late night in a hotel room, which is generally my life now, and I think I can't sleep, I know, I'll go on YouTube and see what Grumbleweeds footage do. <laughs> and I watch half-hour interviews filmed backstage somewhere with them just talking about the process of being a grumbleweed. And are the grumbleweeds... But that's not what the book's about. <laughs> <laughs> well, but are the grumbleweeds still the same grumbleweeds? Or is it well, like no, the sugar babes now? Well, it's thing. It's Robin Colville, who was the one who did a lot of the impressions and used to do... Yeah, okay. so he... he him and I, I'm terrible. I've forgotten the guy. The, the, him and the other the, the guy, little portly book, yes. looked like the kind of thing you'd see in a butcher's window. You know, recommending. <laughs> you know, oh, that's what a butcher's meant to look like. Yeah, that kind of face. Like Ben he Affleck's cock. And then, uh, yeah, well, Ben Affleck's cock very often was played by the Grumbleweeds. Um, <laughs> it's the, the sort of thing that you'd see in a butcher's window. <laughs> <laughs> um, the. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they, so, so what's happened is they, they've, uh, he's the only, Robin Colville's the only one who's still going out to Gumballs, but then he met another bloke and he went, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll swap over from being the straight man to being the buffoon, oh. which I think is the only time that's ever happened in a double act where the person who used to be the straight man goes, all right then, I'll, I'll play the uh, mad one. None of this is about my book. But, but I'd say your book is about psychology and very, comedy. Very badly. And that would suggest that maybe uh, the fella from the Grumbleweeds is uh, feels like he's missing out somehow on the laughs so wants to be the go from being the straight man to being the buffoon oh it's always uh, the, the brilliant timing I, why didn't i have the grumble weeds in the book this now feels like i'm just revealing that there's an aunt in it Mate, terrible sequel. mistakes that i made as an author you've probably got another half a book in you at least <laughs> <laughs> well i'll tell you what when i when i initially delivered the book it was two hundred thousand words for its 120,000 words that it was going to be. And the editor was almost in tears and actually said, as if it was a moment in a kind of bibliophile duel, he went, we're going to need a bigger editor. So uh, it has been quite a... Um, but yeah, I, I, I hope... Uh, should I tell you about the book or not? Yes, no, do, yeah, absolutely. So tell do. us about the... Right, I, I haven't even read the back of the dust jacket, so what is the book? It's basically about um, the fact that uh, comedians are uh, absurd human beings that all human beings are absurd and if you use the narrative of comedians you know because there's always all those things aren't there which is uh, everyone loves a documentary that goes Kenneth Williams made the whole of Britain laugh but he himself was miserable all yes. the time he was always always sad yeah. and of course that's First of all, that's not true. There's, a, there's a, a friend of mine who was telling me, for instance, they would go, Kenneth Williams wouldn't allow anyone to ever use his toilet. He said, not true. I used his toilet on numerous occasions. It's <laughs> only people who bored him that he would then go, when they go, can, we, can I just go and use your toilet, Ken? Oh, no, I don't let anyone use my toilet. You have to go outside. <laughs> and then he'd lock the door and pretend not to be in when they came back. Um, but it, it's using uh, a lot of the kind, you know, why, why comedians become comedians is a favourite kind of topic, you know, yes. whether it's the loss of a parent or uh, sometimes it seems to be a higher rate of people who've been adopted, all those kind of things. Starting off with that comedy narrative and then looking at it in each chapter about all human beings. So how the kind of, and about imagination, I talk a lot to uh, Alan Moore and Noel Fielding in one chapter about uh, imagination and that whole kind of thing of, you know, Alan Moore's done a lot of interesting stuff in terms of trying to work out where ideas come from. As I told him the other day, I said, if you have actually worked out where ideas come from, it means you've solved the secret of consciousness and you'll probably win the Nobel Prize, which <laughs> wouldn't surprise me with Alan, actually. I think it's time that it went to uh, someone else who was Northampton-based. Francis Crick isn't enough. 
And did like what what made you pick the comedians to talk to? Was there any sort of special requirements that you thought, oh, they'll be good to talk to about that? Well, nearly all of them. It was just people that I thought like, like talking about ideas of anxiety and stuff. So you know, Sophie Hagen and Felicity Ward were just uh, brilliant for that. Right. And then sometimes it would just be someone I was with. So obviously, I tour a lot with Josie Long, and so we had lots of you know kind of long chats about that. And then then having toured with with Ricky Gervais, there was when I was doing the chapter about ethics. I was kind of like, well, there's a lot of stuff he does that I wouldn't do and that I wouldn't feel comfortable doing. Yes, yeah. So I kind in of terms of material? Yeah, it's just things that... I mean, personally, I, 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 if someone is uh, offended or upset by someone I said, I'd like to feel that I was comfortable arguing my corner. I don't want to just go, it's just a joke, mate, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Mm, if, if sure. someone, I, I, I spoke to Barry Crimmins, who the book's actually dedicated to. Sadly, Barry Crimmins died back in February, an amazing American comic who, who did, uh, you know, fought for so many people who kind of bullied and, and oppressed him. He was a, a very powerful uh, human being. And uh, he, he, when we were chatting about ethics, he said, he said, well, the reason I don't do cancer jokes is I've never come up with one that's so funny that I thought, do you know what, if someone is upset in the audience because it's reminded them of someone they've lost or whatever, I've thought, oh, that's all right, though. Joke's a joke. He, you know, he just thought, it has to be a really good joke. Sure. Really, and in the same way he talked about just the fact that for him, and he, and he wasn't scared of taking people on, he took AOL to Washington and actually went to court. You know, it's not as if you go, oh, look at that snowflake, he's only yes, taking on yeah. an enormous corporation and almost destroying himself in the course of doing it. But he said, you know, words are shrapnel, and he used to like to think very carefully about where he was kind of aiming those words. So yeah. I found that interesting, and Tim Minchin as well thinks very, you know, deeply. When he, when he wrote songs like Come Home Cardinal Pell, uh, you know, he, he was worried, he was thinking, oh, I'm kind of using an individual here. But then again, this is a, an incredibly important thing to talk about because this was about institutionalised, uh, you know, abuse in, in the church and evading that. So, you know, Tim, I think, is very interesting to talk about because, again, he's, he's no... Uh, he'll, he'll take people on, but he thinks very carefully about where he's firing, uh, you know, kind of who he's firing at. I think you have to. As a comedian, yeah, I think yeah, I, I think, think it's a responsibility. responsibility. Yeah, you've got yeah. responsibility. Um, yeah, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Just that a joke is a joke, and that it doesn't really matter, you know. And I will leave it up to the edit. I, just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy all that. I'm very conflicted about the whole censorship thing, though, because I also do feel like things shouldn't be censored. But I think there is an element of self-censorship where I think you need to take responsibility for what you're saying. Yes. Well, I think that's part of free. If you're in a society with free speech. Yes. Then the great thing about that is you you should think about it because free speech is going oh just say anything. Yes. Well then that you're not using it properly because then it loses its you know it's like swearing and all of those things. It, it, it's more powerful to think I'm going to make this point now and I and I, I think uh, yeah I I, I I I also there's a bit where sometimes when you're on tour and someone comes up to you and they say oh I was feeling really down this week and and I've watched your show and I feel really happy and joy that I'd, I'd much rather have that. Yes, yeah, you know, yeah. someone, and it can you, all of it is different ways of, of, of taking risk. This idea of this kind of, and it's been very hijacked by the right as well, this mm. pretense that they're the ones fighting for free speech, but they're fighting very specifically for their favourite free speech. But going you know, back, oh, sorry. Oh, no, sorry, no, I was just going to say, going back to Alan Moore, that's something interesting, that he was someone who in the 80s didn't like the idea of some of his comics having suggested for mature readers on it and things, because he felt that... It was. It, it wouldn't be on a book, so why would it be on a comic? And yeah. so there was all those kind. Of, so there's that element of that you do have this thing now. I guess you've got all the things with like trigger warnings, which you can absolutely see why people want to do that. 
But at the same time, I, I sometimes worry about, like, in art, is it wrong to tell people? Do you feel you need to warn people? And does it, you don't really have that so much in sort of books or sort of, um, or more kind of uh, written literature, doesn't have that thing on the back where it will say, this book contains this, whereas on a movie, you would have like something with a 15 certificate, or it would have reasons why, it may, have, uh, may have explicit language in or whatever. So there are all these various different forms of sort of what you could see as censorship. But is censorship different from warning people that there might be content that might be troubling to them? Yeah, I, I, I feel very confused uh, about that. I mean, like in, in the last show that I did, not the show that I'm touring at the moment, but the one before, I had some stuff that I did about suicide. And, uh, you know, each night I think there's no kind of... I'm just start talking about it. And, uh, and I've actually put quite a lot of that stuff in, in, in the book as well because all of that material came out of the fact that I met someone uh, out in Australia and one night she said to me, you comedian should write more about suicide and then explain why. And it was because her daughter had killed herself and she thought if it was kind of just out there, not just in kind of medicalised or, you know, removing the, the taboo. But I remember every night thinking... Oh, this is the one bit I have to be, you know, really not fuck this bit up. Really yeah, sure. Be careful. Sure. You know, I did a song about suicide last year in my tour because I think that it's something that should be talked about. And it wasn't necessarily like a comedy song. It wasn't a comedy song, in fact. Mm. I, did, I, I wrote it in, during a dark patch. And, um, uh, and so and it, was, it was the opening to my show... And people would come for like have sort of not bad reaction. It, 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 people came up to me and they said that they found it really cathartic. And you go, yeah, well, that's what it's for. And I think that it actually, um, I think when you come and see my shows, I think you sort of go in sort of knowing what to expect anyway. And um, and I think that it was. It's just a thing that people don't talk about in public, and I just think that it's important to talk about it in public and give people the platform to come up to you afterwards and have a response and to be able to dus discuss it with you. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, you know... Uh, but, but then again, if you're just going on stage making fun of people yeah. uh, for killing themselves or whatever, then that's, that's the other end of the... You know, I think that's part of what you do, though, Nick, isn't it? Because you still play shows that are kind of... that you, you can go and see you afterwards and get like a record signed or have a chat with you afterwards whereas I guess if you're playing huge arenas and things you're not going to have that opportunity to talk to the people to, afterwards to, yeah. to, to, to back it up yeah yeah that's what I love about touring I mean at the moment the, the, the show is just every night I end up chatting to some people in the interval because I don't go off the stage or I go and sign books or whatever so there's no bit where I go back to the dressing room I'm normally on stage before the show's even started because it gets a bit boring in the dressing room. Then afterwards, <laughs> you get in the bar, and people come up to you and they say, "Oh, there was a bit you said there, and this chimed with me, or this bit made me uncomfortable, or whatever it is." And you can, you don't have to immediately say, "Oh, oh, you found out? Oh, well I, well, I won't do that anymore." Yeah, you can have a discussion. And yeah, can, absolutely. And, and that's what I love about live. That's why stand-up is the is best live, and especially in the you know, fortunately, I've I've never become hugely successful, which is an absolute relief because um, I can still have conversations. That's my alibi yeah, anyway. Um, I very specifically didn't become an arena comic. I very specifically became a sometimes poorly selling art centre comic yeah. just so I could keep that up. Me too. They've asked me to do arenas. And I say, oh, yeah, no I way. had the same lot. Yeah, yeah Tony, Tony Big Time asked me as well. Yeah, Tony yeah. Big Time said, please do the and I said, no, no, I thank said, you. Yeah, there's a library in Lewisham. <laughs> um, can I ask you a question, Robin? Yeah. How much does your book cost? 
£16.99. £16.99? So, so you can also, it's, it's hardback, it's all proper and everything. And that's available um, in shops? That's available in shops, yeah. Uh, um, and I hope, I hope people, I mean, the nice thing is in the first week, there's the, the, the reaction I've had from a few are, are what I'd had, it was a real struggle. I've done, you know, that bit of kind of, because my, you know, stand-up is rambly nonsense, and, and, and then trying to go, oh, I need to make this comprehensible to people was very difficult but apparently it is comprehensible yeah uh, yeah um there's loads more in this robin hopefully uh would you come in one day and have a, have more of a chat with us i would i'd, I'd love to yeah because it was it was um yeah no i'd really like to yeah and and thank you so much for telling me about you know showbiz penis exposure which i didn't know about <laughs> just before, Affleck, I'd, mate. I'd just very rarely Affleck. get that off, off any of the other radio stations this is a very good um chat actually because we started with Ben Affleck's penis and Batman's penis and we've ended with it it's come full circle not the not the penis didn't <laughs> I mean that would be a skill uh, but, um, a groundhog day of genitalia fantastic <laughs> um, thank you very much I'm really looking forward to reading your book and please come into the studio and uh, talk to us again I would very much like to thank you very much thank, thank you, very, you much. very much Robin goodbye See ya. cheers bye Oh, no, hang on. I'm putting the wrong one down. Um, uh, there you go. Well, um, uh, that was a lovely chat. Um, uh, I did think that we were going to talk a little bit more about Batman's dick, but um, that's <laughs> a shame. What's, what's your song, Pearly, Pearly Spencer? Uh, Days of Pearly Spencer by David okay. McWilliams. <laughs> And Nat's Fan Club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're back in the studio live. Live at, at 1.05. Yes. Is, I was going to say good. five because it blinds. Hello. We're joined in the studio now by Charlie Hickson. Hello there. Uh, 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 you're an absolute legend. Uh, yes, I am. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you for, thank thank you for joining in. us. Thank <laughs> you I'm almost mythological. No, <laughs> fucking, no, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're incredible. Uh, thank you for coming in. Um, uh, bah, 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 what was I going to say? You're not promoting anything, now, are you? Well, not really. I mean, I did have a book out earlier in the year, which we could talk about because it's probably slightly up your street. What was it? Well, it it's called Gates of Death. It's a fighting fantasy book, a choose-your-own-adventure book, which... Well, an actual choose-your-own-adventure An actual choose-your-own-adventure book. An official fighting fantasy book. An official one, yes. Yeah, well, they were, they were created in the early 80s by Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson. That's People right. may remember City of Thieves and Death Trap Dungeon. What was the one? Wizard of Firelock. There was a dragon. No, the Warlock of Firelock. Warlock of Firelock. Warlock of Fountain. Yeah, that's what Warlock of Firelock Mountain, which was the very first one. I was going to say, I think it was number one on the side, wasn't it? It was, yeah, and they went on to sell, I think, over 20 million copies. They were absolutely massive in the 80s, huge they were cult. They were computer games, before but, computer games. Yeah, well, were, that was one of the things that killed them off, obviously, was yeah. that, that, yeah, yeah. that the whole idea was just nicked, and you, it was much easier to do it yeah. as a computer game, because you didn't have to use a pe- have to pencil read. and a rubber and yeah, yeah. do sums and maths and things. Yeah. Well, I, I never used to like that element of it, but I would be fine with it if it was just turned to page... 34. Well, you could always cheat. Yeah, yeah. And just think, say, well, all right, I'm just going to win every battle. Sure. Because I just want to explore the story. That, that's a good thing about me. You could you can read them and play them any number of different ways. Is it was it hard to write or easy? Which do you think? Well, <laughs> I, my my instinct would be that it would be almost impossible. But then 
thinking about it, you're kind of like, you're writing a bit and then you're coming up with different scenarios that you actually have to get to later. So it's a complete branching storyline, yeah. I mean, for those people who don't know what they are, it's kind of like you're in a cave, there's a mad goblin there, do you want to kick it up the arse? Sure. Do you want to hide in the corner or do you want to run screaming? And whichever choice you make, you turn to a different bit of the book. Kick it up the arse! Kick it up the arse, yes. Well, uh, Fuck it up the arse! Kick it, kick it, kick it, kick it up the arse! always choose the most violent, stupid, <laughs> stupid option available to them. But then each... So it's a branching storyline, so each bit you get to, you've got to have about at least three meaningful choices. So the danger is the book just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it spreads in all sure. directions. But it also means that you don't, you don't have to choose one narrative. As a reader, no, but as uh, a, no, as, as, a, as a writer. Well, you, th- there is a sort of there is a sort of true path that if you if you made absolutely the right choices and won every battle, you'd get through quite quickly. But you can't steer the reader too much towards them because they have to feel that they are in control and they are up to to a point. So you have all these other stories and and ways of exploring the book, but but you do have to end up at the same point at the end. And sure. do you do it like a flowchart? Will you often get to the same kind of? You do, yeah. I mean, when I started it, I thought, oh, I could do this. I mean, but it's that thing of that everything you do creates another whole mess on top of it. It's like a sort of um, Mandelbrot. Yeah, it just keeps growing every day. So, yes, I ended up doing pages and pages of complex flowcharts and diagrams and maps. And but that's things. how you'd have to do it, right? Otherwise, it'd never end. Mm. Well, there is actually now there is an app you can use called Twine which they use quite a lot in schools, actually, right. where you can input it and it does all the sort of branching and stuff for you. It is a really interesting way of rethinking how to, to tell a story and how to write a book. But when you went to the publisher and you said, I've got an idea for a, a book, what, you pitched it as a choose-your-own-adventure? No, they came, they came to me. Right. I got to know Ian Livingston, one of the original creators over the years, because um, he also created Games Workshop, uh, Warhammer and all uh, that. Okay. He was a massive gamer. He and Steve were the people that first... Im- imported Dungeons and Dragons into Europe. Sure. They're huge gamers. Uh, and he went on, after doing the, the Fighting Fantasy <coughs> books, Ian Livingston went on to be quite a, a very big wheel, probably one of our biggest noises in the computer industry. He was behind things like Tomb Raider, oh. working for all these companies. Uh, he's now a big spokesman for the games. And I met him at a gaming event because I'm a big, big gaming fan and I was a big fan of his books and everything else he did. And I got... We got uh, Chummy. He, he quite liked what I did, and I liked what he did. And he said, look, if we ever relaunch these books, would you like to do one? And I said, yeah, it would be brilliant. So they have relaunched. Scholastic have taken them on and republishing all the original ones and doing some new ones. Did he give you, like, pointers, or is there, like, a website that you Google to... Well, Google there is, is where you Google. Well, as with everything else, there's a huge amount of info on, online, but there's on also... On how to do it, though? Well, no... That you sort of have to work out for yourself. And, and everybody that does it, does it in a slightly different way. Yeah. But I had a lot of help from a fantastic guy called John Green, who's like the sort of keeper of the flame for fighting fantasy. He's written books about it, and he's an absolute expert, and he's done a lot of his own. So he helped me on the, the technical side. But he did say to me, and I was quite chuffed, he said, oh, I couldn't believe after, what is it, it's like 30 years now, that you managed to come up with a couple of things that have not been done before. So I was really? quite yeah, pleased okay. by that. Yes. Oh, what, uh, I can't tell you what they are. No, You'd but that's, to, really, that's the like a, 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 the <laughs> ultimate compliment, isn't it? Yeah. That's great. doesn't mean it's good. It just means that it's not been done before. Oh, oh you've done it like that. <laughs> that's weird. No one's done it like that before. Often, though, they would just be, you might turn to a page that's only got like one or two lines where it says you've fallen down a hole and you're there, Yeah, the, you, you do need to put in a few things where if you make a stupid choice, you are dead. Right, yeah. But, yeah, some of the books, some of the early ones were criticised that you would, it was way too easy to die. Oh, right, yeah. So too, I, too I, difficult. I've tried to sort of give, it a, give the reader more of a choice that, 
they don't have to go necessarily all the way back to the start. It's like Nightmare, isn't it? That TV series. Very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. And I, there was, I had a very sort of like when I was very young, there was kind of like a, a big, uh, I think it was about space aliens, and there were these green little things that were on the rocket, and you had to go through it like that. And I don't think that it was possible to even win that. It was, it was like four pages long, and you'd die every single page. <laughs> it was, it was Have you ever read that book about the uh, private eye uh, in the 80s that was investigating a missing kid uh, who was involved in this underground Dungeons and Dragons game? No. You're not read that? Oh, God, I wish I knew what the... <laughs> can, you, can you look it up? There was a huge moral panic. There was a huge moral panic to start with, with Dungeons & Dragons mm-hmm. because now they hadn't had a game like it before, which is where you play as a character and it's a role-playing game and it's about being that person interacting with the other people more than it is about yeah. killing it. And, and so inevitably, because parents didn't know what this thing was the children were playing it there was a huge fear it's like oh my god my my child's being possessed he can no longer tell the difference between reality and fantasy and there were films made about it and stuff and it was nonsense when i was a kid there was the the dungeons and dragons cartoon that was on and i loved that as a kid and i remember seeing that there was a dungeons and dragons event that was on at the barbican i remember begging my mum to take me to it but only being about four or five and then turning up and there's just lots of men with beards and dice and you go, this isn't what I imagined. <laughs> what I thought it was going to be people dressed up as like uh, with lances and... Uh, yeah. and well, that's what people do things. with... Uh, with uh, are you aware of LARP? Oh, is that live action role play? Live action role play, right. which is where yeah, it sort yeah. of moved on to, where people go for weeks and dress up as characters and have huge... But I, I've, I'm actually writing a script sort of vaguely about it and I've been researching a bit. And there are these huge ones in Europe where thousands of people turn up. You get those and they have these huge pitch battles and they build villages and castles and they all have their own different sort of races and tribes. It's enormous mm-hmm. and nuts. Yeah. And you get those sealed, not people. It's, an offshoot it's of the that, same isn't it? sort of thing. And in fact, some of them do join together because it, it, it's in a sort of vaguely alternative but Middle one Ages. Is the guys from the British Civil War met a dragon cult. Could be like that as well. Could be a crossover, sealed, not LARP. I th- yeah, 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 I think it's probably already been I done. I reckon it's been done. If I've just thought of it, yes. <laughs> it's chances are someone else has thought, of, thought more about it than I have. But that whole moral <laughs> panic thing, it, it, went, it went over into, into the original Fighting Fancy books, which kids loved. Yeah. Sure. But parents feared it. It's like, but then, oh, no, this the, isn't a proper book. The 80s was incredible. That happened with heavy metal as well, with Judas Priest and yes. Twisted Sister. Anything that your parents didn't know about. It's like today with social media. It's mm-hmm. like, well, it's sure. turning our children into monsters and demons. No. And this happened with, with Fighting Fancy. You're you know, just the, not uh, monitoring your children and what uh, they're doing. Uh, a vicar threatened to <laughs> chain himself to the railings outside Penguin Books if they didn't destroy all the books. And another mother got in touch and said, you must ban these books. My son levitated after, after reading them. <laughs> well, that's what, so you can't buy publicity like that. So what this, this book is basically, there was this private eye in... So is this is a, based, a real story, is, is it? Not a, a made-up This story. is a real story. So there's an, there was an actual right. private eye in the 80s. Um, and uh, I've, Yeah, there was a private eye in the 80s who um, gets called in to do a case. And he's written a book. It's like he's, it, But it's written like... Uh, you know, like like a, a Sam Spade novel. Yeah. You know, so he's kind of like this this <laughs> this really hard boiled uh, gumshoe who's kind of and he's written it like it's a film noir, uh, and so he's really embellished his role in all of this. But <laughs> and, uh, but it's 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 just this fascinating book where uh, he gets called in uh, to um, um, to investigate this this kid that's been at, at college, um, and they've been playing. Uh, 
Dungeons and Dragons in the catacombs underneath mm-hmm. the uh, underneath the university and because it's early 80s there's kind of like lots of they think it's a gay cult and uh, and so there's all sorts of things they're these satanists that pretend to be uh, wizards and they're they're all getting up to homosexual activities and then there's this private eye that's got involved and he's like coming along and he's written this book (laughs) and it's just absolutely insane Um, and it's really great and if I like the idea that if you were just a private eye and quite a sort of grubby guy who's just working as a private eye. If you were writing a book about your own exploits, you would automatically become Sam Spade. Yes. I am going to find yes. the title of... See, the book. see, if this was the BBC, a, a huge team of researchers would already have the book sitting yeah. in front of you. Well, exactly. We didn't know it was going to come up. <laughs> to, be, to be fair to... It wasn't to, in our script. To be fair to Natalie, but she has spent ten minutes, and I don't <laughs> even know if she's typed in private eye 80s Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but this has been like a sort of like almost like a whole new career, wasn't it? So you did this and the young James Bond. Well, yeah. Books. I mean, I I I I was offered a new career. God, it's probably about fifteen years ago now. As a children's writer by the Ian Fleming estate, who said, "Yeah, was I interested?" Well, I'm talking now. Sorry, we'll I know you are. I've just got really excited. I think we sort of moved on from no, that. No, we? we've got to do it. You can't oh, just right, go on and go on and then we'll come back. We'll come back to James Bond, which is not nearly as exciting. You'll fucking love this, though. You'll love this. Go on then. You got it? What, just after I've got it? Fucking hell. Fucking hell. It's called... Dungeon Master. It's called Dungeon Master, The Disappearance of James Dallas Egbert III. Right, and yeah. it's uh, it's <laughs> fucking it's incredible. A Texas private investigator recounts his search for Dallas Egbert, a brilliant student who vanished from the Michigan campus in 1979 while playing a live version of Dungeons and Dragons, and it's literally. I wonder how much of the book is actually true. It's, yeah. I imagine it's mainly bullshit, mm. but um, but just the way he writes it, 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 it's, it reads like mm. fiction. It reads like the best fiction, but it's <laughs> his, his true life accounts of how he did, how he saved the day. Yeah, well, if anyone's ever seen Air, is it called Air Hunters? What's it called? That thing, the daytime thing about oh, detectives yes. finding lost heirlooms. It's, yeah, it's, it's uh, and, and who do you think you are, but with like a detective element. Yes, it's like trying to find, this money's been left, <clears throat> let's try and find who it might belong to. Then none of them are like Sam Spade, are no, they? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> My dad is a very sort of like a quiet, well-to-do man. Uh, he liked painting and gardening. Mm-hmm. And I came home one Christmas to find that uh, he'd been watching Dog the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> he goes, I love it. He goes, oh, I love this show. It's called Dog the Bounty Hunter. And you go, fucking hell. Uh, good old Tony. Um, so what were we talking about talking when I was about. Googling? <laughs> I was just but saying. yes, my new career. Yeah, I was offered a new career. The, the Fleming estate uh, approached me very sort of secretively uh, to say they had this new project that they wanted to revamp. And aren't they famously very protective of it, aren't they? they are, well, all, all big estates are. Right. You know, whether it's Agatha Christie or James Bond or any of them. It, it's, these things are huge. Worth, yeah, yeah, huge. Yes. But they approach you. Yes. Why are you? Well, actually, because I had written some crime books in the early 90s for adults and my editor at the time had ended up working for the Fleming Estate and she she knew me, she knew I was a Bond fan, she knew I had boys, uh, but she knew my style. I, I've always really liked the sort of American hard-boiled writing style, the likes of um, Dashiell Hammett. Your love's dungeon master. Uh, and actually that sort of very stripped-down, direct style of writing works very well with kids. Have you ever read any Richard Stark? Uh, uh, yes, 
Yes, who wrote uh, well? What became Point Blank? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a bit. I think in that one that was Point Blank, which is called The Hunter. I think possibly yes. I There's think a great bit in that right. where it describes his character Parker, and uh, it says Parker looked like a man who'd been who'd been carved out a rock by a by someone that thought big and liked veins. <laughs> and I remember going, yeah. And straight away you go, I love Parker. Parker's a cool guy. <laughs> and it's like, it's like page two or something of him walking down the street and just a description, oh. you go, perfect. Perfect. I know exactly who Parker is. And that's what Point Blank is. That's, that's, that's yeah, well, that's what that writing is. It's, find it, it's finding the shortest, <laughs> pithiest, most memorable way to, to describe things. And, and not, you're not pages and pages of flowery nonsense. Mm, sure, sure. And, uh, and they said, you know, was I interested in doing a young James Bond book for kids? And I said, well, of course I am. And James Bond's actually one of the things we were talking about, your, your favourite pop, pop culture, culture icon. icon. Yes, I was asked to name my favourite pop culture icon. I didn't really know what a pop culture icon it is. It could be anything, really. It's all just... Yeah. A, it's all just... Uh, it sort of what's your favourite thing? We planned, <laughs> we planned what the show was going to be, uh, what, eight months ago, and it's veered so far away from what we initially <laughs> set out to do. It's basically a, stru- a, a chat about anything you want to talk about and then if we ever get lost, we'll, we'll, we'll veer into we'll this. we come back but to the things have, on the list. But you, well, I thought, you know, it's perfect there's plenty to talk about yeah. James Bond, isn't but there? It's fa- we could it's, talk all day. It's things you're a fan of and that you're enthusiastic about. So anything like that mm. works. So this is perfect, including Dungeons and & Dragons. And yes. Well, of course, there's probably not a lot more to say about James Bond that hasn't already been said. But, um, yeah, but what's but, but your why? take on it? What's yeah. your hot take on it, Charlie? <laughs> oh, I really like it. It's my favourite pop culture item. Who's your favourite James Bond? Um, well, obviously Sean Connery, because I'm of the age where that was. he was James Bond when I went to the cinema to watch a James Bond film. Oh, yeah, Roger and, Moore. Yeah, and, I'm uh, Roger Moore. Well, it's, you know, exactly. I was, I was very sniffy about Roger Moore at the time, because I was... I probably was slightly growing out of James Bond anyway. Sure. Uh, and then it was like, well, this isn't the proper tough, mm. hard James Bond. But actually, looking back, the, some of his films, the best ones, are actually very, very entertaining. He was a fantastic light comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and as long as you didn't, as long as you th- sort of saw it as something sort of separate to the Sean Connery sure. films. Then. But I also would say that I don't know how many I've actually sat down and watched, not James Bond films in All general, the but through. the Roger Moore ones. I mean, yeah. Moonraker is a particularly bad but, one. Yeah. And, you know, there are bits that you but remember. But Spy I Love Me is great. Um, Man with a Golden Gun. Man with a Golden Gun is, is my right. favourite James Bond film. Um, Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die has its moments. Uh, but I like, do you know what I mean? Him as a persona, the Roger Moore persona. Mm. Is sticks out for me more than any of his films. Well, that's become I think Connery the sort of parody made better Bond films. with the sort of light yeah, quips and the, sure. um, But it's nice when a series runs that long that it, it, it has to change, doesn't it? And it's interesting yes. now when you're able to look back at it that you go, "Oh, Live and Let Die" is almost like a a huge budget black exploitation movie. Well, that's yeah. what they did, wasn't it? Yeah. They, they made a black exploitation yeah. film, yeah. and you go, "Right, okay." And then uh, Moonraker came two, the two years Wars. after Star oh, yeah, Wars. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great thing about it. each actor has sort of personified the decade in which exactly he was there. So Sean Connery was sort of cool, cynical, stylish. Roger Moore was camp, disco. Sure. Uh, he didn't really take it very seriously. And then Timothy Dalton came in. And then PC came in in the 80s. So uh, Timothy Dalton was a bit dull. <laughs> <laughs> and then 90s, lad culture, designer culture, you know, all that stuff. Pierce Brosnan's Bond completely... I, 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 
personified that. But also action films changed uh, in the, in, like hugely in the 80s, mm. where it became... Mm. And so when you look at um, Licence to Kill, which was the first 15 Bond, yeah. and there was kind of like, it was really violent. Mm. And you go, yeah, that's absolutely a result of you know, Lethal Weapon and Die Hard mm. and you know, Commando. But actually, I mean, the, the thing about Bond is when it's at its best... I mean, Bond always used to be kind of leading and other people would follow. Mm -hmm. And I think the times when it has gone wrong is when it's tried too hard to try and be like other pop, popular well, films. Quantum of the time. Solace was rather, like Bourne. Yeah, I mean, rather than I, saying, but we are James Bourne, we yeah, started yeah. all this, yeah. we're doing it our way, and there'll always be a new generation, particularly if, you know, sort of young teenagers who want to see mm -hmm. that escapist, slightly daft Bond. Mm -hmm. But uh, So, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens, you know, when Daniel Craig moves on, who, what, what the next era is. James Bond, for me, always feels like something that I feel like I really ought to be into it more than I am because it appeals to so much of the things I like. But I almost find that I like those films that are the Bond knockoff movies from the 60s more. I, I really like all those kind of in like Flint. And Matt yeah. Helm. Yes, another, another one of your relatives. Another great Helm. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, it was on the back of, well, it was Thunderball actually was probably peak Bond. I think in terms of the number of people who went to see it, that as the biggest Bond ever. Something like one in three people in America went to see that wow. Wow. in the cinema. Uh, is it Can you name them all? In order? Yeah, I could, but it would be a bit... Uh, this is what the show is <laughs> Doctor made. No. Doctor No. I could probably do it to a From point. Russia With Love. Yeah. Goldfinger. Uh-huh. Then Thunderball. Uh -huh. Yes. I think I could do it so far. Then we have... Um, it was my thing in a pub quiz. Oh, I'm probably going to get this wrong. Is it a Magic Secret Service next? I... Uh, yeah. No, no, uh, you only live twice. Yeah. You only live twice. Then, because Sean Connery had, had enough, then we had oh. Ma Magic Secret Service. Then Connery came back for Diamonds of Forever. Yeah. And then we had Roger Moore come in for um, Living Live and, and Die. Then, then, then I think it's Man with a Golden Gun. Then I think it was Man with a Golden Gun. Which is such a great film. It I mean, I, I, love it, I love it in a way that it's not even like a James Bond film. I just would like, I would watch that. I know a good story about, about The Man with a Golden Gun. Go on then. Uh, sorry, I've interrupted. Okay, well, <laughs> Some apparently we're coming back to it. Apparently, in Are the nineties, in the nineties, when Christopher Lee wasn't terribly uh, popular, and it, mm. he hadn't had his resurgence yet, with a, he would go into one of like the sort of film memorabilia shops and often would <laughs> sign things for them for, mm. for for money. And apparently, what happened once is someone said to him, "You don't have any like props or anything you could bring in because we could give you good money for those." And apparently, Christopher Lee said. Oh, well, actually, yeah, I've got the, the white shoes I wore in Man with the Golden Gun. They went, that is perfect. That's amazing. If we, if we'd, we'd give you a lot of money for those. And uh, so he came back the next week with his white shoes, and he said, would you like me to sign them? And he signed the white shoes, and they put them on display. And they gave him money for them. And as he left, uh, they realised they were two left feet shoes. <laughs> <laughs> they had obviously just bought them from Clark's or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then put them up for sale. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Well, Christopher Lee is phenomenal. He oh, managed to be a villain in three out of the four biggest film franchises of all time. Yes, yeah. yeah so Go on, then name them. James Bond. <laughs> yes. Star Wars. Lord, Lord of the Rings. Rings. Yeah. And he didn't do Harry Potter. See, he only had been in Harry Potter. He was do also you know Dracula. Yeah, and he was Dracula. I, yeah. I saw an interview. I watched lots of Christopher Lee things. I saw an interview with him. Where, um, was it he was boring? It was a little bit. <laughs> oh boring. no! I, but I, I, that's partly what I like about them. And apparently, they said to them, "My agent was talking to." Oh, that's a good impersonation. I like my, a good my one. My agent was talking to the producers of Harry Potter, and they said, 
oh, we have a marvellous part here that he could play in Harry Potter. And he, so they, they said, yes, uh, well, he'd, he'd love to do it. And the producer of Harry Potter said, no, because he's already played a wizard in The Lord of the Rings. And he goes, I mean, that's what's wrong with filmmaking in this country. <laughs> <laughs> it must have it's been like, fucking yeah, oh, it's furious. Because yes. there's that story about Bill Nye. He was so desperate to be in Harry Potter that he just did, like, what... He, he got, like, ten minutes of screen time. He was just like, everyone else is doing Harry Potter. Why aren't <laughs> I? Know. He goes, we haven't got any good parts left. He goes, well, I'll be that one then. <laughs> well, Paul, Paul Whitehouse, he did a little part in one of them, the second or the third, as a knight, one of the sort of animated pictures it comes to life mm-hmm. uh, it, it was cut from the film but he's on the DVD extras right through which he made rather a large amount of money wow oh, really simply by being in the DVD extras wow I wonder if that's the reason Bill Nye might have been <laughs> sure <laughs> sure because I'll do that I got a feeling that there was a lot cut out of those first two Chris Columbus Harry Potter films they didn't really feel like Films in the I've way that the later ones you haven't seen any well, of them. Well, they very you? closely sort of followed the book, which actually in the end paid off because the fans didn't want changes. But the books, because they follow a year through his life, are quite episodic. Sure, they're not structured like a film narrative. Sure, they're but more like a. They would have worked fantastically well as a classic BBC Sunday that's evening what I th- I tea mean, time show. When they announced it as a film, I was kind of like Harry Potter because it wasn't because th- it wasn't they hadn't finished all the books by that point. It was what two thousands, and so I didn't realise it was a phenomenon at that yeah. time. And I was just like, well, if it's going to be two and a half hours, why don't you just make it three hours and just do it in half hour episodes, like the <laughs> Narnia book? You know, when they because mm-hmm. Chronicles of Narnia when that was on telly, and uh, I just thought that made so much more sense. Mm. And then they were films, and you go... That's why you're working for FUBAR Radio. That's absolutely... And you're not in Hollywood. That's absolutely <laughs> true. A lot of the producers in this country, if that happened in the United States, they would have said, well, he's played a wizard once, and he, he could do it again. Have you heard his heavy metal work? Oh, yes, yeah. No, yeah. I, know it, I know it's out there. It's quite big. It's easy yeah. to listen to on Spotify, if anyone's interested. But one of his last, uh, one of his last things that he did was uh, he did... Um, uh, it was on the Hollywood Vampires album. Oh, was it? He does uh, a poem uh, <laughs> at the beginning of the... I think it's at the beginning, or maybe it's at the end. I think he does a poem for uh, Alice Cooper and Johnny Depp and uh, Joe Perry on their album. Because uh, they, like, they get everyone. They get, like... Um, I say everyone. I think Paul McCartney's on the album. Was, did Bill, Mine, Bill Nye make it? Bill I know Nye he wanted did, to be on it. He, he, he was desperate <laughs> to do it. I but, think he um, plays a cowbell. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's one of the things he did. It's, yeah, mm, there you go. That's my little. I love Chris Foley. I mean, I, f- I find him. I, 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 but also everything that's sort of quite pump. I like even that side of him. I think he's. And even yes. though he does tell the same stories, I do like. Well, you want him to be like he was, don't yes. you? Yes. It always just seems he's, he's like an inch away from being furious about something. <laughs> and, and he is, and I love it. And you love The Wicker Man. I love it. Absolutely, mm. I like the Man. But I, the last time I saw it was mm, ten years ago, and I watched it on a laptop in bed, and I fell asleep, and I was woken up by the screams of a man getting burnt alive, <laughs> and it was very traumatic. It was a hot room as well. Yeah. So and someone had put a, a hand with a hand candle by the side of your bed. That put yeah. you to sleep, probably. It is a great film. Though. <laughs> Um, yes, we've gone. We've gone off off pace, yeah. haven't we? So, so we're going. Man with the golden gun. Man with the golden gun. Man with the golden gun. It probably did go spy love me. Next, spy yes. love me. And then did it go to Moonraker? Yes, it did because that was the return of Jaws. 
Yes. The, what has always happened with the Bond films is every time they reboot it, they go back to basics. They say, we want to do a proper Bond with a proper story, back to the basics of the character, strip it down. And it, like, they make a really good film, like Casino Royale was mm-hmm. the last time. And then the next one, they think, well, we need to add a little bit more. And add a little bit. And then they get bigger and bigger and sillier and sillier mm-hmm. until you hit, like, Moonraker. And then you've got to and reboot it. Happened with, it. it happened with Pierce Brosnan. I'm, I'm quite a good friend of David Arnold, who... who uh, he hasn't done the last couple of films, but he he did the music for the Bond films mm-hmm. for a long time. And he said he was scoring, I think it was the last Bosnian one, and I can't remember what they were called. Die Another Day, was it? Die Another Day. Was he the last said he one. was trying to write a piece of music where Bond is in an, an invisible car, having a car chase through a hotel <laughs> made out of ice and shooting laser beams. Yeah. And, he, and he was just thinking, this isn't James Bond. No. <laughs> um, uh, he also would do commission lots of bits of music. There's a Scott Walker song which I think is from what, maybe World Is Not Enough but I'm not sure. One of those ones. And it feels like when you hear it it feels like such a classic James Bond theme. Well it, it was, like it was the shame. original theme for the, for the movie and then at the last minute they got garbage in there. What was that? Yeah, I think. Oh no it was Cheryl Crow. Right. What was the one she Tomorrow did? Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow, she did no, Tomorrow, Tomorrow Never Dies. Was it? It was one of those ones. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one they of all them. slightly blur into Tomorrow each other. The never dies. It was like that what was happened with Thunderball, where Cheryl originally Cheryl John Cheryl Barry Cole. wrote a theme called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is the theme that's woven all the way through the film. You had a movie show in the 90s. Right? <laughs> I did. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? I did, yes. We're going all over the place. research. But then at the last minute, the producer said, no, we want a proper Bond thing. And so they got. She wrote a new song, which became Thunderball, that, that Tom Jones did. But if you listen to the film, the the kiss kiss bang bang theme is the one that goes all the way oh, through, and yeah. I think it's the same with the Scott Walker one. That that, that I love that song, and it feels that like that song is, is woven into it. But it, 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 it's a great song, but it perhaps wasn't quite contemporary, big and ballsy, and um, yeah, yeah, ass kicking. And they and they do like to get you know the newest hottest music acting. Yeah, yeah. Which Scott Walker wasn't in the nineties. No, no. And but also in the nineties, he wasn't doing songs like that anymore. He was sort of hitting bits of meat and yes. screaming. <laughs> <laughs> he was. And coming up now, we've got some we've got Scott Walker Ooh. hitting some meat <laughs> with a poem by Christopher Lee. <laughs> um, so, were, were we still doing the so list, or are we onto something else now? Well, we're sort of, we're, we're, the list is quite helpful because we're spinning off. Aren't okay, we, well, from... we got out to Moonraker, and then they stripped it right back down, and they made quite a good film. Uh, for your eyes only. For your okay. eyes only. Oh, yeah, but then there's um, which was the first time we saw the. It was the first time we saw the singer actually sing the theme tune in the opening um, oh. titles. Yes, interestingly. Who was it? It was Sheena, Sheena Easton. Sheena Easton, Prince's girlfriend. And there's a Blondie song, isn't there? Which is like a, another alternative for your eyes only. I think. Right. Yeah. 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 There's loads of alternative James Bond songs. Yeah. On them. Um, Alice Cooper, the man with the golden gun. Um, Apparently, yeah. Jack White, is he called Jack White? Yeah. No, I was confusing him with Jack Black. Um, <laughs> They're opposites. He wrote <laughs> Seven Nation Army as a Bond theme oh. and sent it to them and said, Look, I've written you a Bond theme. That's an amazing song. Yeah. yeah. Would have been, yeah. But they didn't want to use it. But then when they came to do Quantum of Solace, they got him in to write something. And did they use that one? No. No, because that had been around for years. But did they, no, but did they use. They did a new one, right? He did a Jack new White. one with uh, Alicia Keys, I think. That's right, that's right. right. It wasn't very good. I can't remember it. It, sli- it felt slightly thrown together. But right. there was another... But there was um, there was someone else that had done one, and they released it, and it was really good. And it was kind of like, why didn't you use uh, that one? Ah, that was... 
recently that it came wasn't, that was, it, wasn't um, it wasn't Britney Spears, but it was no. a female singer who did a Bond thing that was really good. And Someone's it, written Another Way to Die. Is that someone? Another Way to Die. Oh, that was Jack White's Another Way to Die. Yeah, well, we've, oh, right. we've done that. We've, t- we've literally just talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> who was the woman that didn't it, get you? Uh, I, don't, no, I don't think it was a woman. It was recently. So that was the Jack White one? Oh, you're talking about no, the it was for No, it was for like the last film or the film before someone had written a theme. This is the show, by the way. This is what we want. This is, yeah, this is exactly yeah. what we want. Well, you, you should, your listener should be, should be tweeting or something. Yeah. They say, they say um, it's exactly like just listening to your mates talk at the pub. And you go, that's great, but don't they let you talk? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And don't they have mates? <laughs> it's kind of like, I would, I would have left that pub. But... Um, uh, but because th- when we were doing pub quizzes, it was just kind of like, how many James Bond films were, are there? And you'd, or, or, um, or how many James Bonds? And you could divide them up by the actor. Mm. And I used to know it, but it was mm. just like, you know, Sean Connery did six, and George Lesenby did one, and then Roger Moore did seven, and then Timothy Dalton did two, and then Pierce Brosnan did five? Five, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think five. And Daniel Craig is on, and then you add them all up and you go, so that would be 23. I think <laughs> But that's obviously not including the unofficial Casino Royale. And, um, oh, yeah. and of course, uh, what never was it? Never, never Say again. Never Again. Never. That's a good, that's a good theme tune, I think. <laughs> never that, Say Never Again. Does it go? Never. It goes, never, no. never say never again. Never, never say, it by Jason never say <laughs> never again. It's oh, never. <laughs> Do you not know it? Never say never again. Uh, no. Never Say Never Again is a film uh, where they were sort of like almost pastiching Bond, wasn't it? Where the, he starts off at a health spa and he throws urine in a person's face. Well, that's that one where it has a joke. It's, it's Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet wrote in, it, don't they? And well, they, they added some, some gags at the last minute, yeah. But they also used some of the gags that the I've also gag. seen in Porridge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they did recycle quite a lot. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Rowan Atkinson turns up as who? Is it Q, is it? Is he... No, is he cute? No, he's a sort of, isn't he sort of a, or is he Q? Or is he a foreign he, ambassador? I think he's Q. Yeah. But a young Q, and this was like early 80s as well, so it was a really young Rowan Atkinson before he was like mm. a household name. <laughs> I knew him. Well, I knew his name. You knew his name. In our what house, about then? Name. Yeah, sure. Um, he, well, he'd done not the nine o'clock news, but he'd done Blackadder by mm. that point. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe just about. By then. But yes, because but um, well, they had to. There was a very 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 long legal case about Thunderball. Yeah. Um, which I won't bore you with because on. But the, when they made Never Say Never Again, they were only allowed to make it if it followed exactly, pretty much what had happened in the original script of Thunderball that had been written before the Thunderball film was made, which another producer called Kevin McClory owned. So it follows almost scene for scene yeah. Thunderball. Um, because he had the rights to Thunderball, but yeah, he didn't have the rights to any other Bond. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but th- that's also the reason why Blofeld is unnamed in one of the Bond films and he gets dropped down a chimney. You don't see his Yeah, face. they wanted to kill him off so that nobody else could use him. So they wouldn't use him again, I think, because McClory owned Blofeld because that had been created for... Yeah. Which, film is, which film is, is that in? It's one of the late Roger Moores. And one of the last two. Maybe View to a Kill, the one before. Starts with him on a roof, yeah, being. And he, doesn't he hook him on a, he helicopter, him on a helicopter and drops him down a chimney? Yeah. And in the credits, he's not even Blofeld. It's 
Is it Blofelder's question mark it's or like, one of them? No, it's like um, a bad guy bald in man. wheelchair. Bald man with scar. It's something like that. And mail jacket. <laughs> I saw On Her Majesty's Secret Service at Christmas and I loved it. You've never seen it before? No, I'd seen it. I mean, that's it. I feel like I see them all on telly, but they're also, a lot of them become, I think I it's get confused about which it, ones yeah. and what. But like I watched it specifically to watch it and I loved it. Thought that was like it is one terrific. of the best best Bond films. If it had had Sean Connery in, it would definitely have been the best of them all. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It's terrific. But it just doesn't quite pull it off. All the time. The funniest in the world. bit is all the stuff in the middle, where it he's best when he's impersonating the. Yes, course, but that's not even his voice. He was redubbed for that. You see, that's why he was quite good. Oh, okay, bits. okay. <laughs> but that then it is. It's all. But really the line funny, at the yeah. end, which should be really moving, doesn't quite pull it off. It's a little bit toe curling. Sure, oh, I don't know. I we have all the time in the world. Mm. But then the song, song's yeah, great, the song and then in. you go, oh, that's a Bond. That's a Bond. Yeah. It was like it's slightly different because they they went. Um, it was like a loophole, or whatever. But um, but you know when you realise that Hard Day's Night and Help are soundtrack albums, you go, huh? They're not just albums, and they're kind of like no, they're the soundtrack to the movies. Um, and Welcome to My Nightmare is a soundtrack album because Alice Cooper wanted to break his. Uh, contract with whoever he was with before, <laughs> and he went on to the soundtrack album with Warner Brothers. Um, but was there a film to go with it? Yeah, there was a TV, um, uh, it was sort of like a TV spectacular, oh, right. 1975, with Vincent oh. Price in it. Ah. And um, America's answer to Christopher Lee. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so yeah, all the time in the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lee. That's the it, that's Bank Club. Yeah. <laughs> so, that is, uh, so, all the time in the world was. Um, uh, yeah, it was just for, for a Bond film, and you just like, oh, that's crazy, because it's such a... a uh, yeah, well-known uh, song outside of Bond and everything. Yeah. And mm. I think because it's not... Because it, the song doesn't go... He's got a powerful weapon. <laughs> yeah. And he's on a Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. They don't do yeah. that. So I think that's why it can probably exist on its own, right? Because it hasn't got the name mm. of the film. Yet. Sure, but it's not about a man that's going around uh, f- fucking women and shooting people. But that music is woven all the way through the film. If you listen to it, there's sort of cocktail bar versions of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. John Barry. Yeah. The it's the least he could do, actually, is to come up with a theme for the film. <laughs> you know. Or just recycle the, the Bond yeah, theme. Well, because, the, because the opening theme, obviously, is an instrumental. And a very good one at that. It is good. Very we good. should play a song. Oh, it's your song, It's right? your song. What, what, what song would you choose? I can't remember. It's this, well, but I don't even know I if I could present it. Adriano... Celentano? Yeah, I don't know how to say what it's called. Prison, colon, essential. It, it, it is. Now, I first heard this. They played a bit of it on QI. Right. And they tried to get people to identify what it was. And actually, I followed it up, listened to it. It's actually a really good, quite funky song. It's done by this Italian guy. And it's, you know, like in, if, if you're a child and that and you're like... I'm going, or if you're Paul Whitehouse on one of his comedy shows, he says, I'm going to be an Italian. Go, hey, bitch, what are you make You make up gibberish. Well, this is an Italian doing like something that sounds like American, but okay. actually isn't American. So it's an Italian doing it back to us. Okay. And it's, uh, it's actually quite a good song. Okay, I'm going to play it. Reason cold in ancient ants, you you the cold maze, say one prison call in answer and choose all. All right.
Nick and Nat's Fan Club on Fubar Radio. And we're back <laughs> live at 146. So we're a minute out. Never mind. Um, uh, yeah, we're uh, still in the studio with uh, Charlie Higson. Um, you like uh, Sam Peckinpah? I do, yes. Yes. Um, Very much so. Uh, but specifically The Wild Bunch? I think The Wild Bunch is the greatest film ever made. Do you? Yes. It is very good. As a piece of cinema, it is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, go on. Yeah, no, no, go on. I was going to say, earlier this year, I watched um, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo That's Garcia. what I was yes. going to mention. Warren Oates <laughs> is my f- one of my favourite badasses. From, uh, he's great. I only knew him from Stripes for a long time. Oh, uh, God, the Bill Oates was amazing. Yeah, and, and whatever he was in. When I started going brilliant. through the um, uh, the fucking Sam Peckinpah, um, uh, fucking fucking Sam Peckinpah, <laughs> but when I started watching all the Sam Peckinpah films, yeah, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. It's great. But he's also well, someone described that film as the worst made great film. What bring me the head of yes. it's, it's so, all over the place. Oh, I, I mean, he it. was so off his tits when he was making it. Sure, right. It's largely incoherent, but it is. There's something majestic about it. And Warren Oates yeah. in his white suit, yeah, gets it, his grubbier and grubbier glasses. as it goes on, yeah, talking yeah. to heads in bags. Yeah, it's great. I love it. it. Makes very little sense. But he's great in the Wild Bunch as well. Oh, he's got yeah. a wicked moustache in the Wild yeah, Bunch. Yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, I mean, the moustache does a lot of work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just brilliant. And you know, it's it's a film about old people as well. Yeah, exactly. which you, you don't really see so much. I was just thinking, when their faces on screen are just amazing. And it's about the end of an era, isn't it? It's about mm. the end of uh, the the Western movie era as well. It's kind of like yeah. coming into it's like, and, it, and it's a transition between yeah. Cause, you know, I mean, when I was growing up in the sixties, the sort of default mode for American entertainment, film, and TV was westerns. Yeah, sure, there were tons of western shows on TV, like Bonanza and High Chaparral and The Virginian and all these things, which are, and and western films, millions of them made, and then sort of in the seventies. They, they sort of started to die out and, and basically the sort of thriller, the action thriller took over and, and the sort of cop show which is now, which is what everything is yeah. uh, and The Wild Bunch is, is in some ways a sort of transition between those two things because it's sort of set I think just before the First World War um, and they've got these sort of, uh, it starts with The Wild Bunch, the gang, they're, they're impersonating American soldiers so they've got the automatic Colt pistols, they haven't got revolvers They've got now the sort of pistol that everyone uses right, okay. in an action film. It's the sort of the square one with the the cartridge that you push into the handle. Right. And and yeah, it was a transition between you know in in westerns people would always get shot, but there was never any sort of explicit blood. But then what happened was the well, West, the western sort of got exported to first of all Kurosawa started doing his samurai movies, yeah, yeah. and then they came back to Italy. Uh, which got, got remade as the sort of early Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns, which were much more violent than the American ones. Well, it's, it's and a, cynical. And but it's like that song that you just played. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. it's uh, American sensibilities filtered through... Uh, no, it's an, yeah. uh, an American genre that's filtered through Italian sensibilities. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and they're also totally postmodern movies, aren't they? They, they are those yeah. things where they go, this is them going, but this is what they'd really be like, or this is how yeah. we'd do them if we yeah, made them. They well, don't the, make the a lot spag- of sense. It's all just about the moment and yeah, the yeah. set piece the and the music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just like, let's get um, Henry Fonda in to be the bad guy. Yeah. And, and the first thing he does is kill a kid. And you go, <laughs> what? And Henry Fonda <laughs> is just like... Uh, the story of that was... he t- That was Once Upon a Time in the West. And, yeah, uh, yeah. The story of that is Henry Fonda sort of like... Uh, he put contact lenses in and he sort mm. of like dyed his beard different colour and kind of turned up on set. And so says, you know, 
the aim was just like, no, you've got to look like Henry Fonda. <laughs> yeah. Because what we're going to do is you're going to walk in, you're going to kill a kid, and then we're going you're you're to see you from behind, you're going to shoot a kid, and then the camera's going to turn around and you're going to see your blue eyes, and everyone's going to go, no, Henry Fonda. And I love the fact that it was kind of like yeah, yeah. that cast, it was casting that was only based on the fact that Henry Fonda had all of that baggage with mm. him, and they were making him do something completely different. Um, yeah, and then, was, and then the World Bunch sort of reclaimed all that mm. back for, for America and kicked off the whole sort of modern, violent crime it's, thriller. It's like that game film. where you draw a head and then someone else draws yeah, the body. Yeah, it's yeah. Kind of like, it was like a back and forth where it's like, OK, it's been over to Italy and then it's coming back to America. Mm. Do you know what you call this. those? It's called... An exquisite corpse. That's what it's called. Really? Exquisite yeah. corpse. Nice little... But you see, the Spaghetti <laughs> Westerns didn't ever really make a lot of sense and you never believed in any of those people as actual yeah. characters. But the great thing about the Wild Bunch is that they're real people. They, they've got a real... There's yeah. almost a documentary feel to quite a lot of it. Of just the, the gang, just well, what's left of the gangs, they're hanging out with each other and just being blokes. It is funny that you say you already think, oh, it is just old people. You think, yeah, because actually, weirdly, I do almost... There's a little bit of Dad's Army about it. <laughs> there's a little bit of like uh, of that in it as well. And it is, yeah, it feels like... I watched Unforgiven this week and I haven't seen it mm. for years and years. And that's another thing where it's like an old, old cowboy. And it made me think that Unforgiven feels like one of those movies. It was such a huge thing at the time. Yeah. And it feels like in the consciousness, the public consciousness has gone away a bit. And yet you think like the influence that that film's had on everything since. Unforgiven? Yeah. Do you think? I think it's you. Yeah, you think like, but even stuff like, you know, a film like Logan that came out, you go, well, that's basically Unforgiven. What do you think? It's just that it's the plot of Unforgiven put in a sort of superhero <laughs> context, isn't it? Sure. It's the old sort of the warrior. Yeah, who comes back. back one last job. He has to come back for one last job. And you think, oh, it's just Unforgiven, isn't it? And you just think all these proto-Western things, and, and I guess even Tombstone again, that's fan club, is probably something that's coming out of unforgiving. Well, it's interesting. They do. They they keep trying to bring the Western back these days, but none of them have worked. Well, Open Range. Did you see Open Range? No. Oh, that was that was great. And well, it was might have been a good film, but it didn't. It didn't no, sort it of didn't, bring back. No, sure, sure. They did. They did Magnificent Seven recently, didn't mm. they? Tried to sort of. Yeah, but that was shit. That can be a problem if you're, if you're trying to redo but in things. Terms of, like, in but terms now, of, yeah, it's, it's, in terms it's, of modern it's, westerns, so Open Range was a really great film, and it was, it was and it was kind of Kevin Costner coming back and doing a western, mm. and he wasn't the lead; it was Robert Duvall was the lead, and yes. he was kind of like the co-star. But Old man again. Yeah, but but it didn't. <laughs> it didn't relaunch the western. You're quite right. No. But I guess the nice thing about the Wild Bunch is it's sort of an old man end of the western at the time when it is actually yeah. the end where they sort of yeah. realise that they're not making things anymore. I do believe yeah. I and made that And he made loads of Westerns before I, that. I believe I made that point about four minutes ago now. Yeah, but we're clarifying it. We're clarifying the point. And, and, and he'd actually started... Just don't like this relationship start, that we've got going at the moment. He'd started by making Westerns on TV. TV oh. Westerns. Then he got into movies, made a few movie Westerns. And then after The Wild Bunch, he pretty much concentrated on, on thrillers. I've never got all the way through Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Um... It's pretty with, good with Chris Christopherson. It's got its moments. And uh, yeah. what's his what's his uh, oh, what's his name? Chris Christopherson and he plays uh, James Coburn. James Coburn. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, James Coburn. Wow, he's great. Yes, he Tremendous. was very very cool. When he turns up in Young Guns too, and you go, ah, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's got a lovely set of Nashes as well, and he James Coburn. Yeah, mm. what's uh, oh, I can't remember. There's a Nick Nolte film that he plays his dad. They, um, I can't remember. Oh, James Coburn plays Nick Nolte's dad. Mm, Paul Schrader film. Um, I can't remember what it's mm. called. Both, both Nashers, good Nashers. Uh, 
casting. Nolte and... Nolte and Coburn. Nolte and Coburn. I mean, that's a, 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 a nausea. <laughs> 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 uh, um, uh, uh, that's I, I enjoyed it too much. No, um, it's good, though. It's yeah, good. But, so Pam, Sam, Pam, Pam second part. <laughs> Pam second part. Uh, she was a very the, good director. The Wild Bunch, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Straw Dogs, oh, Junior Dogs. Bonner, The Getaway, mm-hmm. Pat Garrett and Billy the King, Bring Age, Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Killer Elite, Killer Elite Cross of Eye, a film about how awful the war is from the Germans' point of view. <laughs> I mean, you just like go, that's like such a bold move, isn't it? Where all of the heroes in the film were Nazis or German <laughs> ah, soldiers. The, yeah, they're not Nazis, yeah, they're German soldiers. German but it's kind of like, um, but you know, it's con- that's a controversial yeah, yeah. kind of thing to make in 1977. Convoy, God, I didn't know that was Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, he was slumming it a bit there. Yeah. Oof. No, that's one Ride of those the High films. Country, one of his early ones. That's a fantastic film. Convoy is one of those FOP purchases, one, which is still in the cellophane next to my bed <laughs> eight months later from buying it. But, <laughs> The yeah. Osterman weekend sounds a bit like a sort of Richard Breyer sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like something That's quite nice is happening. Sort of turgid spy things. Um, we've got five minutes left. Oh, should we do the right. game? Should we do oh, the we're game? Play a game. Okay. Okay, this is the game. It's called Better or Worse. And okay. in this game, you just have to say whether the person afterwards is better or worse than the person before it. So you're starting in- off with Alan Sugar. Yeah. Is Gino DeCampo better or worse than Alan Sugar? <laughs> oh, God, I start, that's a hard one to start with. I think Gino, I'm is Gino DeCampo better or worse than Alan Sugar? Yeah. I think I'm going to have to say better. Gino DeCampo is better than Alan Sugar? I'm going to say worse. Oof. Don't. I mean, your opinion doesn't matter, Charlie. Oh, sorry, it's all oh, just right. based on my own opinions. Oh, OK. Just, that's it. But um, Have I got to try and guess what you've said? Yes. It's normally fairly common sense, but... Right. Put a Pauline Quirk better or worse than Gino DeCampo? Well, obviously better. Better, much better. Better. Much better. She's got her own school. I like her, yeah, I like Pauline Quirk. Nick Berry, better or worse than Pauline Quirk? Worse. Worse, yeah, he's worse, yeah. Worse. Is Danny DeVito better or worse than Nick Berry? Well, better. Better. I better mean, than <laughs> you were actually making him angry. <laughs> <laughs> better. <laughs> Is Gary Barlow better or worse than Danny DeVito? Far worse. Worse, yeah, worse. Uh, <laughs> Far worse. <laughs> Is Dusty Springfield better or worse than Gary Barlow? <laughs> better. I'll, I'll say better. Better, yeah, yeah. Better. I'm sorry, I, thought was, I thought we were still on Danny DeVito. Is Prince Harry better or worse <laughs> than Dusty Springfield? Worse. Well, I think you all have said worse. Worse, yeah, it was. Is Prince Nassim better or worse than Prince Harry? Uh, better. Better, yeah, I'd say better. <laughs> and is Prince better or worse than Prince Nassim? Oh, far worse. Far worse? Oh, yeah, yeah. Prince, Prince Nassim's a far better singer. And <laughs> I'm afraid Prince is better. Oh, Prince really? Uh, yeah. Wow. Oh, Prince the, yes. Yeah, Prince. Not the dog. No. <laughs> seven. seven, got seven. That's, pretty good. that's not bad. Who got ten? Last week, John Niven. Jo- yeah, John, uh, Niven. John Niven got got ten. Nailed it. But uh, but if he hadn't got ten, uh, you would have uh, been. Well, if I'd realised it, it was it was like a sort of Top Gear leaderboard thing. I'd have I'd have tried a bit harder. Sure. Well, it is like that. Yeah, but you right. can't well, you can't you, you can't me. live your life like that. Can you can't you? live your life in the past. Mm. Um, you got seven. Rewind. Uh, before then, the, I don't think we've ever had a nine, but before then we've had an eight. We've had several eights. Mm, interesting. <laughs> oh, it's not, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I mean, it's, it's barely a conversation, let alone why are we broadcasting it? <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell. Um, and your favourite show is The Prisoner. That, fucking, uh, that's, no, that was my yeah, favourite show. We've got another four um, minutes. We've got one minute, right? Um, I loved The Prisoner so much that there was a girl that I, not, not fancy, but I, I, re- I loved her at school and uh, she was a really good friend of mine and uh, I, I taped every episode of The Prisoner for her and uh, made, it into, made it into a box set. Oh, that's lovely. Did you ever watch them? Who knows? But on the spine, well, spit up on the spine, I drew his eyebrows. Ah, that's nice. Uh, what? So that you had to keep them set all together. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, I made a box like set the for him. Yeah, yeah. And I, I drew sort of like a, his eyes and his eyebrows. So I a box set of, of VHSs. Mm. Was it? Was it like sort of ten foot this wide? This was nineteen ninety-seven. <laughs> no, I, I got it all on three, three, four-hour tapes. Oh, okay. I think I may be. I think I may have used time episode. stretching. Oh, the LP, uh, long yeah, play. Yeah, maybe I used long play. Um, yeah, see, see, I watched it first time around in the sixties, being that much younger than you. Sure. Okay. But yes, I, I do remember in the seventies I was at university and they re- repeated them and everyone was watching was, it again. Yes, it was. Uh, I mean, it it holds up, and it was the Secret to Danger Man, wasn't it? The unofficial Secret to Danger Man, where. Um, and then also, it was one of the instances where he knew that uh, they weren't going to get another series. So that the, by the end of the by the end of the prisoner, it went absolutely fucking bug nuts crazy. Yeah. Anyway, that's all we've got time for. Completely Thank you for coming. And in, your Charlie book Hickson. is called Gates of Death. Gates of Death. Final Fantasy in shops now. Fighting fantasy. Fighting fantasy. Fight, fighting fantasy. Fighting fantasy. Good night. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes.